Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the 2019 Circle of Film Awards in today's episode. Nobody by the same height. And you can save all your goodbyes. Stop trying to pretend that we're all not at home. And the streets look so empty in the morning There'll be no one out there who's a little bit like me Who knows deep down I'm not where I'm meant to be Every day it's a little harder as I feel my power grow Don't you know there's part of me that loves to go so fast this year the abbreviated award season the oscars are sunday uh is causing everything to feel condensed to feel squished and and diminished uh and and i really don't like it i i i don't know if if i had another couple of weeks if any of my nominations would change for this year Uh, there's a good chance they wouldn't I've seen a lot of movies from 2019, but, uh, you know, there's that tiny chance and and there's always going to be movies you wish you could have gotten to in time. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, that's what I have my, my look back honorary award for. And, uh, that's, you know, a, a sm- the honorary oversights are, are a small, 
uh, offering for for those films that didn't quite I didn't get to fast enough. So I'm looking. I'm um uh, today Wednesday. This is the Wednesday episode. Uh, normally the I think normally the last episode before the Oscars is my Circle of Film Award episode for that previous year. Um, due to the the scheduling of everything and whatnot, uh, it's going to uh, today Wednesday is going to be that episode instead, and Friday will be my Oscars prediction episode with a guest. Uh, tried to do that last year and had some technical difficulties. I will make sure to avoid that again this year. Um, so, yeah, getting this a couple of days early. Uh, the 5th, gosh, the 5th of February. I am excited for next year for the Oscars to be held in late February instead. And, uh, I don't know, it's not... Again, it's not as though I feel like the nominees or anything would be substantially different. It's more that I just I don't feel like I have enough time to to. It feels so fast. It feels just way too fast, and uh, you know I I wish I could sit with this a little bit longer before doing it. And I but I I just I want to keep keep up with how I've been doing. I want to make. I don't want to feel influenced by what wins, and and I don't think I am influenced by what wins because I feel like I know what what's going to win most of the awards anyway, uh, which I'll get to on Friday. So these are the 2020 Circle Film Awards. Uh, one sub, uh, significant change that I am making this year, or rather this episode. Uh, in the past, I have done a medley of the top. Um, uh, uh, winners, or, or sorry, top not of the top five nominees for best uh, original song, and that has been used as the intro for. Uh, I, I used it as like a secondary intro for this episode, and due to the lyrics of some of these songs and the way that they were intercut, uh, they're actually going to be. They've actually already been used as the intro for this episode i played them already you've already heard them though that clip was the were they that was the five nominees for best original song uh and on top of that because they are so long and i feel like that you get a pretty good idea of what songs they were and what they sound like already i won't be using short clips of them when i do get to the song nominee category uh, unlike previous years i don't know if that's going to be a change going forward that i'll stick with uh, or if it's just going to be a one-off thing because of uh, the difficulty of merging the music together for this year as opposed to other years. So, yeah, those were your original song nominees, and we will talk about them when we get to the original song category. Uh, so, without any further ado, uh, I am going to jump in to the first category... Of the 2019 Circle of Film Awards. Are you ready for this? I I am ready. Let's do it. Uh, It's going to be a long episode, so we got to get started. Your first category for the Circle of Film Awards in 2019 are Best Special Effects. And the nominees are 1917. The Lion King, Parasite, 
Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Toy Story 4. If you are new to these episodes, uh, a small quick refresher. I will announce, I generally announce the nominees of each category, and then I talk about each one in order of where I would rank, uh, in order of ranking, uh, lowest to highest. So we'll start with our number five nominee on the special effects category, and that is Toy Story 4. Special effects, uh, for me, loosely translates into a uh, a combination of the visual effects, the animation, the film editing, the cinematography, a lot of the intangible aspects, uh, the things that you wouldn't necessarily see when you're if you're on the film set uh, with the characters watching the film happen. And uh, so so I kind of lumped them all together in this one category. And number five, Toy Story Four. Obviously, it excels at animation. Uh, some of the scenes in this movie are breathtaking. They look gorgeous. The op- one of the opening scenes in the movie uh, where uh, where the car, whose name I'm forgetting, uh, gets stuck in the mud out in the the uh, drain pipe. That that oh my goodness! It, it just it's so striking. It's so dynamic. The water Pixar is so great. Uh, at animating water ever since Finding Nemo uh, they've just continued to build upon uh, this this wonderful animation that they've they've been producing and uh, it, it really shows and and they don't you know there's not a ton of water in this movie outside of that moment and we get you know one of the best animated uh, cats ever uh, I maybe even extend that to animals in general you know, I think the cat in Toy Story 4 is much more of a cat than the raccoon was in um, Incredibles 2 the pre- uh, a year ago. And just across the board, I think Toy Story 4, there's no hitch. There's no, there's no letdown in the animation whatsoever. Um, visual effects aren't, you know, that's not as big of a thing for animated films. Uh, so it doesn't really qualify for that part of the category. Uh, film editing and cinematography, though, it does. There's definitely an aspect to this. Um, thinking of things like the plush rush, the way that's edited, uh, a lot of the um, Duke Kaboom scenes and the editing and the way those are filmed, uh, or rather not filmed, but but composed and set up. You have uh, so many of the interiors of the antique shop, the outside, you know, uh, when, when the rest of the toys are in the... Um, uh, what, what do you call it? The camper, the the, the camper, I guess, is is a sufficient term. Uh, you know, so many of these moments, when when man, when Woody and and Forky are walking down the side of the street, it, it just it looks so gorgeous. You know, there are so many times where it just feels like these are toys out in the real world for me, and I mean that also goes back to the animation, but I, it has a lot to do with the cinematography as well. It's it's putting the camera and, and filming and, and showing these sec- these scenes from an, a vantage point where you get a chance to see something that could be real, right? You get a chance to see, uh, you know, in a carnival, you get to you know go through these rides, under these rides, take they take you to places that I've never seen the underneath of a carousel, you know, I've never seen the underneath of, uh, you know, and I love how creative and, and, 
fascinating and, and dynamic so many of these moments and shots are from so many different perspectives. It, it really is um, great to, to, to see those things. So my number five best special effects, Toy Story 4. My number four, my number four, uh, and this is, when we get to ranking these movies, uh, especially in these tech categories for me, it, it's always tricky because, you know, I want to make sure I'm, I'm I want to try to make sure I'm not waiting, you know, visuals more than animation, more than film editing, more than cinematography, but it, it's always difficult. My number four and my number three are, are incredibly close together and they are very, very far apart as term, in terms of what type of movie they are. But... I think ultimately, number four has to be Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <clears throat> uh, visual effects, uh, you know, not not really a thing. Animation, not really a thing. But man, the cinematography in Portrait of a Lady on Fire is some of my favorite of the year. Uh, the film, if you haven't seen it, uh, I'll, I'll try to give you an idea. It's mostly takes place on the seaside uh, a lot of the scenes are in are indoors but there are many scenes outside and the the way the camera manages to capture so many peripheral elements uh, of the cliffs a lot of cliffs the water lapping at the the sand and uh, you know there's a little kind of crevice of a cave that the characters go into at a couple of points and all all these different features in the area are used to maximum effect within the film. They're allowed to be what they are, and I, and I love that uh, the, the film and the characters and the writing and everything about it sort of work around those aspects, work around those elements. You end up with this beautiful scenery and you know it reminds me of something like silence scorsese's silence it just it just looks fantastic it, it you know content and otherwise aside and and i mean i love the content of portrait as well but it, it just it is beautiful and breathtaking and it, the, the first there's a long shot uh, a long scene of of uh, the main characters venturing outside it's uh f not the first scene outside, but but venturing outside, and you get to see Adele Hanel from behind for a long stretch until she starts running. She gets all the way up to the edge of this cliff and stops, and she turns around. It's the first time you see her face, and you know she has this big smile uh, she's wearing, this kind of relieved, like freedom, exaltation type of a smile. And it, it just, the combination of, of her, her, her expression and, and the wind hitting, you know, pulling at her hair and her clothing, uh, you know, you have uh, Heloise and, and Marianne as, uh, uh, as our main character following her and, and getting up right next to her, right behind her on that path. It, it just it just pulls you in and, and this is one of the this is it, it has a lot of similarities i think to um, blade runner 2049 in that villeneuve and what he is able to do in that movie he slows so much of it down all the scenes are very 
extended and yet it it is still a captivating movie it's still an engrossing and compelling film and i think siyama pulls the same thing off with portrait a lot of the scenes especially in the early parts of the film are very slow very long very meandering uh very quiet and this is really the first big scene that that feels exciting that kind of gets your pulse racing and the dynamic aspect i feel like i'm saying dynamic a lot the the contrast of that moment to everything we've already seen is is striking and it has a lot to do with not only the the cinematography of everything but the editing too you know it's cut in a way that gives you that excited feeling gives you that excitable you know energy uh the film from an editing standpoint uh to kind of transition to that there's a lot of cuts that the film makes from a a conversation to one of the paintings that marianne has been working on or uh something similar to that effect uh it cuts she i think she's having a conversation with um heloise's mom and they're talking about her painting Heloise and it cuts uh she says I think she says remarks regarding uh you know her progress and you know she's coming along it's getting close and we cut to her current uh iteration of portrait of Heloise and it's really really bad and it, it just it's a it lightens the mood you know this is a film that spends a lot of its time you know with its characters straight-faced and and serious and sad and this is you know there's some of these cuts though that are just hilarious in and of themselves and and without doing anything else beside you know cutting to this one you know this image of this this portrait that just does not look good and 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 how could it when you're painting someone who refuses to pose for you right so I, I love the editing. I love the cinematography, uh, but it just couldn't it couldn't get over the hump. I think because of the you know just there's no visuals, there's no animation, and and as great as I think the cinematography it uh, is, and I think the editing is also very good on their own. I don't think they're quite enough to to reach higher for this film. Uh, and the film that I think is very close to that, my number three in the special effects category, is The Lion King. Uh, The Lion King is the lowest rated film to be nominated at the Circle of Film Awards for 2019. Uh, It is, in fact, the only film that I gave less than a 52 that is nominated for anything. And with good reason. I did a review episode for The Lion King. I have a lot of problems with the film. But the visual effects are absolutely stunning i think whether or not you like the way they're used whether or not you like the voice acting whether or not you like that the movie was even made it is undeniable that the lions and the hyenas the the entire african desert savanna pride rock animals meerkat and, and timon and pumbaa and zazu and rafiki they look incredible the Jungle Book won this award in its year, and I guess what was that, 2016, and it was, I mean, it, it was a combination of, you know, not only was the Jungle Book, did the Jungle Book have great animation and, and great visual effects, but 
it was a it was a good movie and and it it allowed it allowed the story of the jungle book to to kind of open up to breathe to feel you know because so much time had passed since the original animated version had come out you know it got a couple a few more liberties and i really appreciated it taking that that extra step the lion king doesn't have a lot of those opportunities and so the film itself doesn't feel quite as uh new quite as original quite as interesting and and part of that i guess is also that it's coming out after the jungle book it's not the first film to have such you know realistic cgi in it and even if the jungle book hadn't existed we still had the planet of the apes series and by the time we got to war for the planet of the apes the visuals are just you know they're they're just incredible you know the the caesar uh, the way they're interacting with humans you know that is a huge step so the problem there and and I, I, the reason I talk about the quality of the Lion King is to kind of hinge on the film editing cinematography aspect of of my of this category, which is they're not good. Um, it, it's it's a film that, despite how realistic and lifelike these characters are, feels lifeless. It feels hollow and empty, and I do think a lot of that is the voice work and and the facial animation, which uh, hurts it, but. I I think pr- more so it is the the just kind of uninspired you know fin- film editing and then cinematography and it just it's very bland and so The Lion King gets to this spot on its visuals and animation which I think combined to be just 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 slightly a better than the editing cinematography on the side of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I think it, it's close. I, I've gone back and forth on that a lot, but this is where I'm going to settle. And uh, I think it's where it, where it is. So my number three, uh, my be- easily for me, the best visual effects of the year, uh, The Lion King, personally. So number two, the runner up for best special effects. It comes down to Parasite and 1917. My runner up, is Parasite. Parasite, um, and, and I guess I'll, I'll sort of talk about this with alongside 1917. I think both films have great editing. Uh, I, I struggle to pick one over the other as far as editing is concerned. Uh, Parasites is obviously much more obvious. It, it's, it's, I think, especially in the first act when the cons are, the, the, uh, the duplicitous nature of the, of the, characters is taking place and we're seeing that the lower class uh family integrate into the upper class family uh into their house the the cutting and editing in that especially the montage sequence and i'll talk more about that later they're all great it's it's just it's an escalation that is breathtaking and beautiful and wonderful and on the other side you have 1917 where the editing isn't visible at all because it's supposed to be one take and and there's obviously it's not but it it presents itself as a a single fluid shot and it takes as much skill and ability to make that happen as it does to make what parasite does happen you know to make a film that 
is edited in such a way that it gets it gives you this this tonal freedom that bong has to to shift things instantaneously and and back and forth and back and forth the montage that i talked about has so many parallels within itself uh in in such quick cuts and the film knows when to ramp things up knows you know when to use when to slow down and and slow down uh the scene and when to pick it back up and when you want your voiceover while we're seeing something else and when you want to see your characters actually talking and there are conversations that are happening uh, simultaneously across two different scenes but the cut the the editing of them and, and like i'm thinking of say uh when song kang ho and um his son are talking are discussing uh they're kind of reading lines back to each other but we're also getting that happen at the same time as we're seeing song kang ho actually having the real conversation with um with yo Zhang. And it just back and forth, back and forth, and I think it's beautiful and it's it's wonderful. The cinematography in Parasite is is great as well. Uh, all of the shots coming up the escalators, coming up the stairs, uh, just heads appearing uh, from beneath the floor level. Uh, that's, that's a great motif that Bong uses a lot throughout Parasite. You get um, you, you you just. It's a it's a film that deals with these two sides of the upper and the lower class, and even when we're seeing when we go back to the slums of the lower class, the the cinematography replicates that. It feels dirtier, it feels grittier. We get this wonderful overshot of the flood when it happens as we're slowly uh, floating downstream uh, toward toward the lower class side of town and. Uh, when we get you know deeper into the film and things really take a turn, you know it, it's, it's there's a lot of characters to kind of keep track of. There's two whole families uh, and then some, and managing to give us a lot of there's so much happening in the background of these scenes and so much happening in the foreground of these scenes and and capturing both aspects of that without taking away from either of them is is a you know, is a strength that Parasite shows, and it just, there's a lot, there's so much to, to love and enjoy about Parasite, and uh, on a, from a technical level, I think it really excels in that regard. Uh, so my number two is Parasite, and my number one winner of Best Special Effects 2019-19-17. It has the editing. It absolutely does. I'm, I hate that single take films like Birdman and like 1917 uh, are apparently just have no editing supposedly that's what they say uh, if you look at the lack of Oscar nominations in this category but they do they have incredibly impeccable editing uh, because of what they're trying to pull off and you know, you you look at the makings of and the special features, and like this isn't one real take. These are many takes stitched together to look like one take. And you know, when I'm watching 1917 and when I'm watching Birdman, I'm fluent enough in having seen films to realize, okay, well, this is a spot where there could have been a cut. This is a spot where they could have stitched things together. This is a spot. This is a spot. But 
at the same time, I'm just, I'm in awe of the camera work. I'm in awe of how, how perfect it is and how it, it, you know, you think of, it puts so much added pressure on the cinematographer, on the DP, because, you know, I think people talk a lot about these, these films where there's no, there's no cuts and say, oh man, can you imagine if 30 minutes into a scene, if, you know, if George McKay falls in the wrong direction and it ruins everything and they have to start all the back way back over but and that's true uh, you know there's so much pressure on them but at the same time like if the camera guy shakes shudders shrugs coughs like he has just as much pressure on him uh, perhaps if not more because you know he's uh, working the camera you know he george mckay can kind of like stumble while he's running and that might that might be fine if the camera guy fumbles a shot you can't use it it's all crap and so you know who knows how many times that happened uh probably not that many but who knows how many times you know it mistakes have to be fixed and i think they probably have to be fixed a lot when you're making a film like this and i think that's you know edit the editing in 1917 is just impeccable the cinematography is beautiful uh the landscapes um the 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 planes in the sky the underground um bunker that they go through uh the night time oh my goodness the night scenes in 1917 look incredible all of the shadows cast across uh from uh from the fire it, it just it's it's something you you can't it's it's one of those images where man i could have never thought of that like yeah i can i can think of you know looking out at the seaside i can think of i can see an airplane flying through the sky even flying right at me right above me but this the shadows of these buildings uh cast across the dirt um in a city uh with a fire raging but like that that just there's so many components to that and to not only create this scene, but to realize how cinematic it can be is, is man, Deacons, right? Deacons is just outstanding. Uh, and then, honestly, for me, the point, the, the thing that puts 1917 over the top of Parasite in this category is uh, the visual effects. You know, Parasites aren't much, if any. Uh, 1917 has them and and not only has them but they're very very good uh it's not lion king level personally but uh you know a lot of the various you know explosions and 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 gunfights uh you know the the scene from the trailer where uh, scofield george mckay's character is running perpendicular to the other the rest of the uh soldiers and you've got explosions happening behind him there's so many elements and i think when you just add into the fact that these are all all these scenes are taking place presumably in one take and and even when they're not it's still with scenes that are being shot in a much much longer period of time than the average scene you know you think about mad max fury road and and what a achievement that was but you know to kind of potentially take something away from mad max fury road there are a hundreds of thousands of cuts in that movie and so 
you know, every time you're filming a scene, you've got like 20 different angles and, you know, every, something can go wrong and that's fine because a different angle might have gotten the thing you needed at the right time. And, you know, it's easy to cover up all the different potential mistakes that can happen. And you don't have that luxury in a film like 1917. And so I think it, it adds a little extra pressure uh, to to the people working behind the scenes. So best special effects 1917 man half an hour in to finish the first category (laughs) okay uh we're moving on best special effects 1917 next category best original score best original score and the nominees are christoph beck frozen 2 Alexander Desplat, Little Women. Jael Jung, Young, Parasite. Thomas Newman, 1917. And Trent Reznor with Atticus Ross, Waves. Number five, best original score for me is, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, uh, Jael Young for Parasite. I think... Man, Parasite, I mean, there's very very little to complain about with Parasite. Uh, the score itself is great, uh, transitioning between, as I've said, like the the, the poor and, and, and well-off class systems. Uh, you know, you it's grittier, it's more elegant, it's, it's, it flows better when you're with the upper-class family and as things sort of transition into that house more than anything else. Uh, the montage music that takes place a couple of times throughout the film and not not that this it's the same music over and over again but there are multiple montages uh that and sort of rapid paced events that happen uh which cause you know which in creates this moment that requires um music that keeps you focused that allows you to hear what's being said but also see what is happening on the screen. Like I said, they do a lot of cutting where it's voiceover and you're watching a different scene while you're hearing somebody talk. There's moments in um, this film that are just heartbreaking and devastating. And and I think especially towards the end of the film when we're watching the conclusion, the, the epilogues, there are the the music behind them is is a real proponent for for why they succeed like they do why they affect us like they do why i'm watching those scenes and i i'm you know these these not all these characters particularly this this family of of un, lower class people aren't the best people right like they're not as much as we root for them they're they're kind of they're not doing quote unquote good things. And yet I care so much about them. I care about every single one of them. I want all of them to succeed. And I contribute that to, of course, the performances, but the score is is a really big proponent of why those that happens. And I think that's true of most films where the characters themselves are um unsavory to any degree, even. Uh, so my number five, Yael, Jael, Jael Young for Parasite. Number four, 
uh, and this is who I think, um, actually I'd have to look, uh, I, I think this is who, mm, maybe not, ignore that. Uh, number four is Thomas Newman for 1917. Uh, I think he's probably the one of the top two options at the Oscars uh, alongside Joker, which I don't feel is the best uh, score. But I think Thomas Newman, his score in 1917 is really, really, really good. He is able to, you know, I think war movies in particular, I personally feel... I don't know. I think you end up often listening. You know, I think of like Hacksaw Ridge and and such. I spend a lot of time hearing the guns, hearing the explosions, hearing you know the the sound of of all the uh, the the equipment and gear and whatnot that the characters are carrying around. You know, kind of jungle jingle and and bounce and whatnot, uh, which is fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But often, I think the score itself kind of gets a little, ends up taking a backseat in, in war movies. And so I have to give Thomas Newman huge credit for what he does in 1917 because it, it isn't. It is absolutely not that the this, 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 that case uh, in this movie. It is a front and center um, you know, player and and cast member in this movie it does a lot of the work uh, especially in the first third or so of the film uh getting us to connect to these two characters to to mckay and um the other guy who's uh he plays tommen in game of thrones you know we get a little banter from them you know we're kind of kind of whisked away on this journey with them from the start and when we get these slower moments, uh, Newman's score really picks up in a way that draws you into them. And when we kind of get these faster moments, when we get these, uh, get those explosions, get those gunshots, get all that stuff, uh, the score itself, the score finds a way to weave in between the soundscape of 1917 better than maybe I've ever heard in a war movie uh, with with the exception of, say, Dunkirk. Uh, I think, you know, and that's a preference thing too. But yeah, I, I, I really admired the score of 1917. It's very, it's very Thomas Newman. Uh, if, if you've seen, I mean, he's he's been around for, for many, many, many years. And I think this is a score that you know, for someone who has had so many fantastic scores in his career, this is one that I think pulls a little bit from a bunch of them and feels like, it feels like a culmination of sorts. You know, it feels like he's trying to, trying to incorporate everything he's ever learned about composing into this one movie. And for from a lesser composer that would maybe feel like a mishmash, mishmash maybe feel overwhelming maybe feel like too much but from Newman I think it feels spot on it feels man he he knows exactly what he's doing he is a master of this craft and it it really does work so my number 4 
from 1917, Alfred Newman. My number three is Christoph Beck for Frozen 2. Um, one of the films that I nominated in this category that did not get a nomination at the uh, at the Oscars, I I think Frozen's score, Frozen One, uh, it's it's very iconic. It's very you know the songs from it I remember very very well. They they're very poppy. They're very memorable, and um, you know Let It Go of course was so huge and so much of the score. Uh, connects to that song and and to the other songs from that movie that everyone kind of remembers and for for the first time in forever and um so on and so forth but frozen 2 you know so it has this kind of unenviable task of trying to live up to let it go and live up to that moment and i think in various in different ways it does and it just it's a it's a simple fact that for a, a movie to hit that perfect storm the way that frozen did with let it go and find a song that can break across uh you know awards love into pop radio it doesn't happen that often and it happens even less when it's coming from a musical you know greatest showman uh kind of did it but it never even came close to the success of let it go and you know la la land none of the songs i never heard any of the songs from la la land on the radio uh, Let It Go really was, is kind of this this unique thing. And so it's no, it's no surprise that none of the Frozen songs really pulled that off. But I think the score from Frozen uh, is is really, it, it just, it's a much more in, incisive and, and probing score than I thought Frozen had. It's able to, you know, I think this movie tries to be more mature. It tries to dive deeper into these characters. Um, and I think the score is a big part of, of of understanding that. You know, there are moments in Frozen 2 that kind of feel, I don't know, a little superficial um, at first blush. But with the accompaniment of the score, that 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 permeating, that, that penetrative... Ah, melody throughout the whole thing it's such a great motif it's such a great uh it's so simple it's so easy right and and it kind of makes you wonder like has that has that really never existed before did no one ever you know use a melody like that ever in, in over a hundred years, you know, in about a hundred years of, of cinema, when they've had music on, behind movies, they've never, ever had a melody like like that. And it's it's one of those, like, man, you, you couldn't have... It's so simple, and it's so effective. And from the first part, moment of the movie when we hear it, and from the way it's carried throughout the film, and if it, it reminds me of Moana uh, in... in just the way it connects to not only uh, the film, but also to Elsa and, and to Anna's characters. And as as we hear that melody reflected in the score, we hear it reflected in uh, Adina Menzel's voice and some of the songs that she sings. And I don't know, I, I just, I'm, I'm infatuated, I guess I would say, with 
the score of this movie and and how it allows itself um, it finds a new a new path in a, in a world and in a sequel that had so much to live up to um, in Frozen 2. So my top two uh, that leaves Little Women and Desplot and Waves with Ross and um, Reznor. My number two best original score from 2019 is Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross from Waves. It's a very, very close one. But for me, I'm looking at Waves and, uh, man, uh, every time I, uh, the handful of times I'm going to talk about this today, it really feels, it's so, it's such a distinctive movie. And even within the film itself, there are very distinct sections. And be and and you know you're looking at the transition. Uh, there's a scene that takes place. Uh, that's it. It's a it's a loud. It's blaring. It's at a party, and then there's another scene that takes place. Um, that's quiet. It's calm. It's serene. It's at the side of a, a a lake. It's it's fishing, and you know when I think of Reznor, Trent Reznor, and Atticus Ross, I think you know Social Network. I think bombastic. I think blaring. I think loud. I think that party scene, I don't ever think, you know, this is a, you know, quiet, peaceful moment, you know, sharing a moment with somebody down at the, you know, the edge of the water, listening to the waves, you know, listening to the the very simple trickling of of the motion of, of the water. And... I think that's this this second half of this movie that kind of revels in that peaceful serenity is a very fascinating departure from what I'm familiar with from from Ross and and Reznor that it really kind of struck me at how how well they were able to capture that those moments how well uh their their score fit in in those scenes because it, it does seem a little out of place a little uh unconventional a little different for them but it, it works it works incredibly well it works uh beautifully with with oh heck sorry it works beautifully with these moments these reflective introspective moments that permeate throughout the second half of the of waves and like i said i personally i don't you know first half of the movie i could totally get choosing Reznor and ross second half it it really feels like it's a little out of left field and then they did it and and it's absolutely great and i i odd you know this movie has such a huge attachment to music there are a lot of scenes where we're stuck in a car with some of the characters and we're just listening to them listen to music and i think you know when we're outside of that and we're hearing the score as opposed to you know the soundtrack of the song of the movie it feels like that's our version as the audience of experiencing these these the melodies and then these words and these these vibes and these uh, the nature of, of what's happening through our ears and, and, and kind of translating into what we're seeing and, and how these characters are reacting and how they're feeling and, and how 
they're they've been impacted by all the events that have come before them and before us in this movie. I I really uh, really like the score of Waves, but it comes oh so oh so short of my number one best score of 2019, which is Alexandra Desplat's Little Women. Um, this is. The second win for Alexander Desplat in the Circle of Film Awards. Uh, Reznor and Ross have also won in the past. And Little Women, you know, Greta Gerwig's remake of a story that's been told many times before, uh, gives us a lot of new, interesting perspectives on a story that we're all, that many of us are familiar with. And I think Alexander Desplat and the score of the film has to do the same thing, right? Hand, uh, you know, half a dozen people have done the score for Little Women or a version of it in the past. And so there's a lot he can draw on as far as, you know, what did they do when so-and-so did this? What did they do when so-and-so did that? And here we have Desplat looking at the sort of jumbled narrative structure the the reorganized narrative structure that Gerwig uses in Little Women as opposed to what we've seen in previous films and I think what that does is gives uh Desplat this this kind of free pass to to be very very different and it gives him I think for me an easier path to connecting these scenes because they are connected so much better in this movie than they've been than they have been in previous iterations of this story. You have these much more obvious parallels uh in in Gerwig's version of the movie. And when you allow you 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 know we see Desplat giving that um you know kind of um what was nursing that connection with his music that feels, you know, very classical, very of the time, and you know, I think he's one of the best at at going back at the to these times. You know, I, you know, he did uh, Shape of Water, as well, uh, which I I loved, and um, you know, it was another film that it has this contemporary aspect to it. It does have moments where it feels like, oh man, this is it feels so real and and alive right now and yet it take it's taking place decades ago and and for little women you know centuries ago um practically and and i i think Desplat just knows how to make that tra- make cross that barrier and i think it it just it comes across for me as the just uh, the most connected to its material the most understood of the scores uh of of the year for me if that makes any sense um so my number number one best original score winner of 2019 is alexander desplat for little women our next category is best tactile effects this category resp- uh, um refers to Costume design, makeup, hairstyling, production design, stunt work, sound. Uh, so a lot of different, 
A lot of different things and elements going into tactile effects. And your nominees for 2019 are 1917, Little Women, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Us. Uh, so two films uh, reaching across to both effects categories, 1917 and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Starting with number five in this category, we have Us. Us has some pretty fantastic tactical work throughout the whole film. Uh, it's got a pretty good score, great soundtrack, uh, some wonderful performances. And the costume design in Us is pretty great, even if it is a bit uh, singular in its direction. I love the red outfits. And uh, the outfits worn by the normal, quote-unquote, characters in the movie are also solid, fine. Uh, but I think it's the lack of breadth to the, to, to, cost to the costume work in Us that holds it back a little bit in that side of things. Uh, as far as makeup and hairstyling, I thought it was really well done. Uh, you know, there are diff there, I think there are very subtle differences between the um, other versions of the characters and the... Uh, quote-unquote normal versions of the characters that set them apart and some of that is the hair some of that's the makeup and that plays a very big role in differentiating the two types of character the production design uh, the various houses that they encounter uh, particularly uh, the entire underground area that the film utilizes is wonderful it has really strong production design uh, the stunt work is really solid you have a lot of um you know walking into walking into the fire uh a lot of you know vi you know it's a horror movie there are a lot of violent elements to it uh you know with the scenes that um are shared by a character like the same actor twice you know are uh you know there's there's stunt involved stunt work involved there i know like the the moment where um uh, Winston Duke, Winston Duke, Duke, I think, uh, is out and yeah, out on the boat, uh, with his other, you know, that scene has, has some really good stunt work. It never feels like stunt work. It feels real. It looks authentic and, and it works. The sound in us is great. You know, the scissors, um, you know, it's a horror film. Sound is a very important element of those, these movies and, and, Jordan Peele and then the sound team make that work, make that come alive. The rabbits, the um, the the clicking sound coming out of um, Lupita Nyong'o and, and and the various other mute um, characters throughout the film. You know, there's a lot of good sound design, soundscape, sound elements going on in us. So my number five, I think it's strong across the board in these categories. I don't think any one thing really elevates itself though, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think it, it's held back a little bit. So number five, us. Number four, portrait of a lady on fire. I think the costumes are fantastic in portrait. The, you know, the dresses look amazing. Uh, especially, um, you know, the green dress that is worn constantly throughout the film, but every other, uh, everything else uh, that that um, Adele Hanel and, and uh, Heloise and Marianne wear, and uh, and the, and the servant maid, 
and her mother and you know you just you get a wide variety of of really great period costume uh, design the makeup and hairstyling uh, goes a long way i think you know there's there's a lot of it's it's never it's not very pronounced it's not very obvious it's a lot it's very subtle uh in application in portrait of a lady on fire and i think it's successful in that regard but it is one of the one of the weaker of these particular elements um the production design the castle that this is filmed in um is pretty fantastic it's huge it's it's overbearing and it's it's empty it's cold it mirrors uh the the characters very well and and allows them to it shows them in the space in a way that they are supposed to be in a space in the beginning of the film it feels open it feels wide it's expansive and as the film progresses the conf- the confines of the castle get a little tighter and and you know we start to find ourselves caught and stuck in areas that uh we didn't venture into in the beginning you know the many fireplaces the the design of marianne's room and the way it's segmented so that she can continue to paint while being under the impression that you know she's not supposed to be painting anything and i really love how all the areas are set up and they and it's done so with kind of a a barren set decoration you know everything is fairly bland in term. you know there's not a lot happening and yet it still feels very personable it still feels very intimate when it's supposed to uh the stunt work not not a ton in portrait of a lady on fire i don't believe so not not much to say about that the sound in portrait of a lady on fire is pretty good actually i really find myself impressed with um there's point uh, especially when we're seeing uh, marianne drawing and painting and and the way the focus that the sound team has on the sound of a pencil scraping across a page Uh, there's a part where a page is ripped out of a book and man you hear every single fiber breaking in two when that happens uh, it, it really focuses on these minute elements, uh, the waves lapping at the shore, um, the scene outside uh, around the, f- the campfire, uh, the, harmonize, uh, the harmonizing with uh, the group of women, the playing of the piano, the concert, the, you know, all these different aspects are, are just, you know, they're vital, I think, to, to, capturing the time to capturing the characters and and the relationships between them and by heightening some of these sounds and and finding a a strong way to mesh them all together you end up with a really more complete um, vision of of what and who these people are and what this movie is about which i really appreciate so kind of in the same same uh category as us i think uh, maybe a couple of categories for portrait are a little higher one or two are a little lower than us but uh, all in all a, a very strong showing in this category overall without anything being too um, perfect in and of itself costume design uh, for me would be the highest uh, rated of the individual categories
So number four, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Number three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And uh, costume design is pretty strong. You know, it's a period piece. I think the costume design in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is actually really good. I... Well, you know, it made me, if I felt in that moment, uh, the various outfits that Rick Dalton wears uh, when he's acting, uh, the ar array of different clothing styles worn by the Manson family affiliates and, and so forth, uh, Brad Pitt's clothing, um, uh, uh, Margaret Qualley, and uh, of course, you can't forget Margot Robbie and on everything that she wears, you know, a lot of great costume, a lot of great costume design in Hollywood. Uh, makeup and hairstyling, I think, is just as strong. You know, they're on a film set. There's a lot of, you know, touching up this, touching up that, making this look good, making that look good, wig work, and so on and so forth. A lot of that is really stellar. But the thing that pushes Hollywood up to third is absolutely the production design. It is absolutely the production design. I think it has the best production design of the year. I don't I do think it's close, but I don't think it's much of a contest. It's not for me personally. I think Tarantino, like, I feel like the budget was 50% of the, pro the production, took up 50% of the budget. There's so many things in this movie. Everything is impeccably built. Everything is impeccably staged and, and set up the, from the cars to the houses to the movie sets. It just, it's all incredible i am just i was just floored by how beautiful the production design was in once upon a time in hollywood uh the stunt work uh there's some good stunt work it's not the best stunt work personally but there's a stunt element in the, within the film itself and uh it, it's it's there and the sound i think is also a little lackluster uh it's not bad by any stretch but i think it never really sets itself apart in a way even to the degree that i think um us and portrait of a lady on fire do i think hollywood has some solid sound uh there's a flamethrower and some guns fire and, and so on and so forth and so it, it it has a job to do at times but it it does it definitely feels like um as at least in within the confines of this category more of an afterthought than anything else i think this movie gets here on the strength of its production design and uh, costume and makeup and hairstyling so yeah i mean production design is is second to none this year it is pretty outstanding so my number three once upon a time in hollywood which means top two in this category this year are 1917 and little women Runner-up for Best Tactile Effects of 2019 is Little Women. The costumes, number one. Number one of the year, costume design. They're fantastic. Not only are they fantastic, they tell a story within themselves. Uh, the color scheme within the costumes uh, and the way it relates to each character, the transition, or rather transference of clothing between characters is symbolic and representative of various relationships that they have with each other. It's it's absolutely incredible. I fully expect it to win the Oscar for costume design. Makeup and hairstyling, equally, uh, not equally, but also very, very impressive. Uh, you know, having to manage the very the, these this these characters across multiple timelines uh, requires 
uh, in the same way I think it did when in with us crossing you know multiple types other types of characters you have to dis differentiate these this is when everybody is supposed to be this age this is when everyone is supposed to be that age you know the costumes do it the makeup and hairstyling does it you have to know you know I think the strength of the editing within Little Women hinges on the power of the costume, makeup, and hairstyling departments to solidify your, you in the right time. And I think it is because they are so strong and so good that it's able to do that. Production design. The house that the, the women live in, uh, the various places that uh, Joe goes to and uh, lives in and... and, and uh, when she's talking to Tracy Letts and when they're going across the street uh, to Co Chris Cooper's house, like the, the houses are beautiful and uh, seem very lived in and at home and at peace. And uh, when you get these outside areas and uh, you see like the fences and the, um, I don't know, just it, it, it does a period piece thing. It puts you in that period piece. I, I think the production is strong. It's not exceptional. I don't, if it wouldn't be in my top five production design uh, nominees of the year at all. But it is good. Uh, the stunt work, there's not a ton. There's very little. Uh, the only thing I can think that comes to mind off the top of my head that would probably require stunt work is the uh, ice scene. So not, not a huge factor. The sound is also not a huge factor, but it is there. Um... You know, there's often scenes where a lot of characters are talking constantly and you have to over, you know, you have to create an atmosphere where these characters can all talk at the same time and we can still understand who it is and who, what, who's saying what and keep track of what, what do we, what are, what do they want us to hear? What is the driving line of dialogue at that moment, but without losing the fact that there are other people talking and that what they're saying may or may not matter or, you know, how important is that as well? Um, from the the music while they're dancing, uh, you know, at the at the various parties that take place, at the weddings that are happening, uh, when when Joe is writing, and when you know we see pen to pencil to paper, pencil uh, you know quill to ink, and and so on and so forth. I, I don't think that's quite as effective as it is in say Portrait of Lady on Fire, uh, but I think it's still it's still strong, but. Much like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and its production design, I think Little Women and its costumes uh, are the strength. And I would say makeup and hairstyling being as close as they are to the top in their category uh, are what elevate it to the second spot. But there is a film that does so much of this so, so, so well, and that is 1917. Production design, uh, definitely top tier only second only to Hollywood um, as far as I'm concerned makeup and hairstyling is pretty good it's a war movie there's lots of blood there's lots of injuries lots of stuff to concern yourselves with that that has to refer to the costume design is lackluster you know it's all just war outfits and uh, you know there's only so much of that that really makes an impact uh, but the stunt work exceptional stunt work is absolutely incredible the sound is absolutely incredible um personally i think it's the best sound of the of the year 
I, you know, I definitely would put Ford v Ferrari in my top five, but it wouldn't, it doesn't, doesn't match 1917 for me. Uh, the sound in war movies is phenomenal. Generally speaking, you know, Hacksaw Ridge did it, Dunkirk did it, and, um, you know, in here, it's a lot of finding, I don't know, like, it's it's not a war movie that, you know, it's not like Dunkirk, where it's just constant action and throbbing and pounding and sh- gunshots and, and airplane fi- fire. You know, there's a lot, The 1917 has the luxury of being, uh, of a lot more ebb and flow than, than, say, Dunkirk did, which helps it in some sense, and, you know, it's it's a crutch in other senses, but the sound design in 1917 is is pretty spectacular. It it creates a a sense of urgency. It creates a sense of authenticity. It you know it it, it you feel like you're there. You feel absolutely like you're there. And combine that with you know the an amount of stunts that have to take place. The airplane crash. Um, the uh, the the explosion uh, in in the, uh, the bunker the just the, the number of people that are involved in, in making all this work the production design of setting up all these various places and being able to get from one to the next uh, in a, in the amount of time it's supposed to take to get to them and so on and so forth it's it's a lot and and I think 1917 achieves it incredibly well so second win of the night for 1917 it's the only thing so far that's been nominated for every category um but i yeah 1917 best tactile effects uh as far as i'm concerned so let's move on to our next category the next category is best screenplay uh, much like some of the, the, the uh, technical elements, uh, I combined the screenplays all into one. Uh, so, adapted, original, they're all against each other. And my nominees for best screenplay are Greta Gerwig, Little Women, Ryan Johnson, Knives Out, Bong Joon Ho, and Han Jin Wan for Parasite, Celine Siama, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Lulu Wang, The Farewell. Hopefully I'm pronouncing all of these names right, because lots of foreign language nominees to talk about. Um, screenplays, the backbone of any good movie, uh, and I think all of these are very, very good movies. Uh, so we're going to start with number five, which is Ryan Johnson and Knives Out. Knives Out is a great whodunit. I loved it from start to finish. The intricacies of the characters, the uh, complexity of the plot, the ability of Johnson to subvert your expectations. It's kind of his thing. Uh, Some people love it, some people hate it. But for me, being able to do something like that is very difficult. And what's more, to do something like that in a way that is effective at being not only the thing that you're subverting, but being the subversion of that thing is twice as difficult, uh, if not, you know, ten times as difficult. And Johnson is one of, if not the best, at doing it. Uh, Knives Out 
start to finish, uh, like the, the dialogue and the plotting, I, I thought it was really fantastic. Uh, I had so much fun with this movie, and it's a really test, real testament to his ability to tell us who did the thing 25, 30 minutes into the movie, and for the remaining hour and a half to continue to be incredibly compelling edge of your seat, what's going to happen next, how is this going to be resolved, um, tension. You know, making all that still matter is is proof and uh, of the kineticism of his writing, and uh, so I'm a big fan, huge fan of John's of Johnson's Knives Out. Number four, uh, switching to the completely other side of the original adapted spectrum, Greta Gerwig for Little Women. We've seen Little Women four or five times now, if not more, and. I thought the nine. I think the '90s version is pretty good, but I'm you know I, I love Greta Gerwig. She's the most nominated person at the Circle of Film Awards. This is, I believe, her eighth, seventh. This is her seventh nomination that I've given her uh, out of in ten years, and it's because she takes a story we know. She takes a novel that's been adapted many times before, and she twists it in such an interesting, unique, and new way by folding the latter parts of the book back on top of itself. You know, it's it's kind of, it's as if, you know, the movie It had been, you know, if It chapters one and two had been combined into a single film and swapped back and forth as throughout. And I don't know if that's how the book was written, um, but I think it kind of was. And so, you know, while It, decided to withdraw just the childhood version of the of the book as its first movie Greta and Little Women decide she decides to rather than tell it linearly which is generally how the story has been told she folds it onto itself shows us how many parallels there are within this story um, from when the kids are young and when they're older and what that does is it allows the story to emphasize its moments that much more it gives the characters, it gives these transitions more uh, exclamation when they happen. The moments that were big before are now giant. Uh, you know, when we see, uh, you know, whether it's a character, you know, it's a big decision, it's a, it's a death, it's a marriage, whatever it might be that's happening at, at that time. You know, I think everything is given that much more added additional weight by the choices Gerwig makes in her in the way she wrote this movie and the way that she structured it. And um, it's also a testament to this story that's timeless, as far as I'm concerned, and and that she's able to make us make this movie, set it when it was originally set, set it when all of these movies have been set. And for it to still be incredibly um, poignant and relevant in today, you know, like there are moments in this movie where it feels like they're talking directly to the year of 2019 or the year of 2020 and talking about women and, and what their role should be and what their role isn't and, and what they're they're what they deserve and what they they're they've earned. And it's just it's so powerful to me the way she she pulls this off uh with something as familiar as little women number three 
is Lulu Wong's The Farewell. Um, I'll be honest, uh, of the four, of the five films nominated here, The Farewell is the one that I've had the most time between uh, recording and when I saw it last, so it may be the fuzziest uh, of, of which, uh, that I can remember, but I will try to make sure I, I do my best. The Farewell tells a story that I'm not aware of. I, I If you had asked me, you know, before seeing the movie or before I knew what the movie was about, uh, if people all over the world, you know, catered to anyone who develops cancer or anyone who gets sick and, you know, wants them to, you know, if they, if it, you know, I, w- I would have never thought that there's a place that people just don't tell you if you're sick or injured or hurt or, or cancered or whatever. And so that's, that's a huge barrier to entry for a movie like The Farewell. And, you know, for people who are from that culture, who have history in that sense, who, who have lived through those moments, you know, it's an easy connection to make. But I'm not one of those people. I don't have that easy connection. And yet, when I watched The Farewell, when I got to the end of this movie, when I, you know, experienced what these characters went through, I still felt that attachment. And it's, you know, a lot of that is, a lot of that is Alkafina and Zhao Shujan and the, the fantastic cast and the direction of Lulu Wang as well. But her writing, the way she composes this dialogue, you know, she gives you the connection to Aquafina and this sort of indignation of like, how can you not say anything? How can you not do anything? And so by that through that her as the audience surrogate, you know, someone who is both simultaneously part of and not part of this culture and, and this, this life, you become one with this movie. You connect to it in, in such a heartfelt and, and meaningful way that, I'm just stunned. It's it's as good as it is. I just, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, the the I I I love getting stories from all these other cultures and and areas and places and countries, but there's always this concern. There's always this fear, and and when it's done poorly, it it it's unfortunate because these stories that are not familiar, when poorly written don't translate at all and thankfully Lulu Wang's The Farewell does translate it is still uh, important it, it feels powerful you know you you follow Aquafina and you you become connected to her character you go through the same transition that she does when you're experiencing this concern for her grandmother her nai and it's it's the strength of the the writing and the dialogue giving you know speaking to this this different thing this other culture this different style and way of doing things that you you become connected to it you you understand it you you grow into it you you learn with it and i, I just it it really does um it, you know, it, it's, I think, first and foremost, comes from uh, Wang's writing. So, for me, number three is The Farewell.
Number two, runner-up. Those are the finalists for Best Screenplay, uh, Parasite and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Runner-up uh, for me in the screenplay category is Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won for Parasite. It's so close. I, I think both of these films are so beautifully written. Uh, I give the edge to Portrait, uh, but we're going to talk about Parasite for a minute. Parasite is undeniably one of my favorite films, one of the best films. You look at whatever metric you want, Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, Letterboxd, wherever you go, it is one of the best films. It's got, you know, one just one of the very few foreign language films nominated for Best Picture. Uh, it's been winning original screenplay all over the place. It is far and away uh, a consensus incredible film. And I do not wish to take anything away from it. It absolutely has earned all of those accolades in my mind. I think Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won's writing is perfect. You know, the dialogue is crisp. Um, The the connection between the characters, the, the plotting of the story, the pacing of it, the tonal shifts come almost without warning and feel natural like an evolution like a like an extension of this story as it should be the um the the course of the film the change of these characters both the un, uh, lower and upper class families how they both grow and uh, devolve at the same time how they under, come to understand each other and also come to you know, lose understanding in each other in, in simultaneously is fantastic. And Bong and Han are just masterful in that way. They capture all of it from start to finish and leave it out there. And, and it, the way it comes out through the voices of their characters, um, in the way that the film looks, in the way that the film um, acts is so so great and um it, it just it just man i i i don't have anything I, there's nothing bad i can say about this screenplay I, absolutely nothing bad about it you know i i want more of it that's really it i just i just want more of it i would love a 20 hour parasite but i i think that defeats the purpose right so yeah i I don't have anything bad to say about it. I just, it's, it's positive, 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 positive. It is so, 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 so good. But despite all that, my best screenplay of the year is Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I can heap almost basically every single accolade I put on Parasite on Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I think if there is any... If I, if I have to qualify and categorize the distinction that sets Portrait above Parasite for me, it is the attention to character. And when your movie, like Portrait, really has three principal characters, it is a lot, you know, there's a lot more room to develop them to give them person more personalities, to give them uh, depth, layers, and so forth. Uh, and 
for Parasite, when you're dealing with a cast of, you know, 12 or more that have, you know, significant speaking parts that play integral roles in the movie, something is lost in that execution. And it's I, it's a credit to Parasite. I think very, very, very little is lost in that trend, that, that execution. It, I still feel like so many of those characters are very well defined. But I think it's in their definition and, and the fact that when I look at the characters in Parasite, they meet a lot of resistance. They meet a lot of um, complication in their journey, in their arc from start to finish. And for a lot of the characters, I feel as though by the end of the movie, they have not changed. And movies, I, I don't feel like they need to change the people that are in them, depending on what the movie is. But for a movie like Parasite, I think your characters have taken this huge journey. They have done something monumental. And the results have been catastrophic. And so for so little to have changed, it's a little... I don't know. It, it just it doesn't quite get there for me in that sense. Whereas when I'm watching Portrait and, and hearing the dialogue, watching everything kind of play out... Uh, these characters go through a lot, and it's not quite as as bombastic as what happens in Parasite, admittedly, but but that's kind of it, right? Like it's not as bombastic, and yet I feel like the characters in Portrait have such a such an important natural growth from start to finish. You know, we see we it's kind of like we see the age on their faces. On, on Marianne and Heloise as from from the at the end as opposed to the beginning we see how these events have transpired and and they've they've adjusted they've they've made these these new characters from what they used to be they've grown they have changed there's a line in the movie that is perfectly uh perfectly connects to what I'm talking about which is you know she spends she's spending all this time trying to paint this portrait and at one point she's like, I like this one. And it's because I know you now. And that's kind of it, right? I know you now. And I think these characters in Portrait grow to understand not only themselves, but each other. Or I guess rather, not only each other, but themselves um, throughout the course of this film far better than I feel that the same is true in Parasite. And, you know, if we're strictly talking about dialogue, I think I'd probably give the edge to Parasite. If we're strictly talking uh, about plot, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's so, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's minuscule differences, right? I think both of these films have exquisite screenplays. And for me, what, what ultimately is the, the thing that pushes Portrait up to that, you know, just over Parasite Mark is the evolution of its characters and the understanding that they have with each other. I think is is slightly ever so ever 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 so slightly better than than what it is in Parasite. So, best screenplay, Celine Siama, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, which is the second win 
for Celine Siama. A uh, lot going to have a bunch of two-time winners by the end of this year. Uh, Desplat, Siama, uh, to name a, the first ones. So, yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. So that is that is best screenplay. We now move on to the next category, uh, one of the bigger ones, and that is best supporting performance. And the nominees for Best Supporting Performance are Sterling K. Brown, Waves Laura Dern, Marriage Story Adele Hainel, Portrait of a Lady on Fire Song Kang Ho, Parasite Thomasin McKenzie, Jojo Rabbit Florence Pugh, Little Women Margot Robbie, Bombshell Taylor Russell, Waves, Zhou Yaozhong, Parasite, and Xu Zhen Zhao, The Farewell. <clears throat> Both of my acting categories, 10 nominees as opposed to 5 and everything else. Um, just because you have more people acting in a movie, generally speaking, than there are movies. Yeah, the math checks out. So, uh... I'm going to start 10 just like I normally do and go down all the way to numero uno. Number 10, best supporting performance for me this year is Margot Robbie in Bombshell. I think she gives she does a really good job in Bombshell. I like Margot Robbie a lot. I'm super excited for Birds of Prey uh, this coming weekend, going to see it Friday, uh, Thursday night, uh, and she's a big part of that. Um, she is not playing uh, an exact real person in Bombshell as opposed to, you know, Charlize Theron and um, Nicole Kidman and so on. But she's kind of playing an amalgamation of different people who have testified regarding uh, the various Fox News uh, issues that took place, which gives her a little more freedom. I I think, you know, part of, you know, what makes uh, a performance based on a real person good is that they are that person Uh, more so than a caricature they are who that person is and like um you know and and what margot robbie is able to do and what those people aren't really able to do is to make the character their own uh, to give the character their own flair to do what they want with the character because you, you can't just all of a sudden give a character, a, a, a nervous tick, a catchphrase, or whatever, just because you want to, if they're real, if they existed, if, you know, we can look at evidence of them. You can't make their voice different because you want to, because then it's not that character, it's not that person anymore, unless the character you're playing isn't based, isn't actually a singular real character like Margot Robbie in Bombshell. And so, because of that, I think she gets most of the leeway... Uh, allowable within the film of Bombshell. Uh, maybe the only person with more leeway is um, why can't I think of her name? Um, Kate McKinnon. Kate McKinnon, probably the only person who gets more leeway than Margot Robbie in Bombshell. And she does a really good job. You know, she she's playing probably a little younger um than she is she's got a bit of an innocent quality to her character uh, a sort of 
social naivety that is key to what this film is and what it's trying to say and how it's you know uh, acting and, and and conveying its message and i think robbie is really good at it she's you know she's done that sort of demure sexy aspect um like in wolf of wall street uh she's a little more you know her character doesn't get a ton of time to breathe uh, or rather time to in, uh, in the doesn't get a lot of scenes even in hollywood uh but you know even you know looking at suicide squad you know she can play that sort of off the walls um dirty type of role too and this is a much more innocent down to earth uh completely different values than than some of the other characters she's played type of role for her and i think she kills it it does a really really good job with it and so bombshell number 10 or margot robbie number 10 rather number nine uh is laura dern in marriage story probably lower than i think a lot of other people have her i think she's gonna win an oscar for this performance and she's great in it not not denying that whatsoever um she makes you hate divorce lawyers which i think people hated already so uh easy job but the the real testament to this performance is her ability dern specifically to um affect this role in a way that we know she has doesn't have everyone's best interests at heart I don't even think she has Scarlett Johansson's best interests at heart. Uh, it's it's a it's about you know sending a message. It's about you know being winning more than anything else for her. I think, but it's an absolute credit to Laura Dern and to her character that she's able to convince Scarlett Johansson that that's not the case. And I would say if we didn't see that moment. I don't think she'd even make this list for me, but we do see that moment um, when when you know they're exchanging personal stories and and like Laura Dern like pulls her legs up onto the couch to like listen in like they've been best friends for the last twenty years, and it's just this this physical vibe that she's giving off this uh, connection that she's presenting uh, that she has with um, Scarlett Johansson's character it it it's, it's manages to be that uh impactful on on what she ultimately wants to do because she shows up and you know scar johansson doesn't really want to hire a divorce lawyer but it's that this one exchange and it's part of it is dern and what she's saying what she's doing with her body but other part of, parts of it is what she's encouraging out of Scarlett Johansson. She's coaxing these feelings, these words, these phrases, these this this exchange of dialogue out of her, and she's doing it in such a sort of a sort of sneaky and underhanded way. And I think it's very very successful. And it's because Laura Dern is a fantastic actor, and it's because she's really really good in Marriage Story. So number nine, Laura Dern. Number eight, go to a film. Uh, that we haven't talked about yet, and that is Thomas and Mackenzie in Jojo Rabbit. I love Thomas and Mackenzie. I think she was great in Leave No Trace, and I think she is also great um, in this. I think she is incredibly 
I don't know. She She's the character in this movie that pushes it in the direction I think it needed to go. Um, I think uh, if, if she's not in this movie, if the movie doesn't involve some girl hidden in the attic in, in a, you know, in the walls or whatever, it's probably an okay movie. I think Taika Waititi could still make that movie and it would still be fine. Would not get anywhere near as many accolades as it is, but it's still probably a solid movie with Waititi and uh, Roman Griffin Davis and Scarlett Johansson and everybody else who's involved with Jojo still there. But as soon as Mackenzie enters the picture, the whole film changes and it, you know, it's still got its comedic elements it still has its Nazi aspect to it. It's still pretty funny. It's, you know, it doesn't lose that necessarily, but it gains so much drama. It gains so many, so many, the stakes necessary to push its characters into positions that we want them to be in to see how they react, to see how they grow, to see how they under, come to understand the world around them, particularly Jojo himself. And, Thomas and Mackenzie as this girl hidden in the in the walls is 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 so so impressive. She's you know, she has very little space to act within and she feels like such a huge character. It it's you know, she is exceeding the space around her in how big of her impact is on this film. When we see Jojo outside of the of the house uh, and we even when we see him outside of his interactions with Thomas and Mackenzie, her presence is hanging over him the whole time. And I get it. That's part of the movie. That's the plot of the movie. But I think it, it you don't buy it if you don't believe in her performance. If you don't believe in the way Mackenzie conducts herself, the way that she imposes herself on Roman Griffin Davis. And, and I think she does it impeccably. My number eight. Thomas and Mackenzie in Jojo Rabbit. Number seven. Um, yep, is... Ooh, make sure I get this right here. My number seven is Taylor Russell from Waves. And, man, I wish I could put her higher up on this list. Uh, I really want to. But she is exactly where she belongs. I think she has is just so fantastic in this movie. Um, it's, you know, she, she gives, and, and a lot of people haven't seen Wave, so I don't want to, like, give too much away, but she is a very marginalized character for the first half of this film. And in the second half of this film, she gets, you know, much more to do. And the weight that's put on her shoulders to, that she has to carry in the second half of this film is a lot and it's not easy you know she's new she's not i don't think i've seen her in anything before waves and for her to be able to do this opposite a sterling k brown opposite calvin harrison jr uh opposite um lucas hedges who are all very strong and very passionate performers in their own right is so impressive i think she manages to become the film's anchor in a way that 
I could not have expected walking into this movie, you know, not really knowing what was happening, but halfway through it, that is not where I thought I, not where I saw this movie going. And it's so, so surprising and so refreshing uh, to see just how impactful she became. And she's able to play these small, close, close up, closed uh, in, heartfelt moments. She, you know, exudes the emotion and the impact and and you know you can see on her face the confliction she feels about this and that and what the events of the movie that have transpired you get this beautifully heartbreaking scene that she shares with lucas hedges and his dad that she shares with her father that she shares with you know her mother and and so on and so forth and uh it it she gets so many opportunities and it's it's she knocks all of them out of the park. She's pitch perfect in every single one. Um, absolutely, I'm so impressed and cannot wait to see more from Taylor Russell. So my number seven best supporting performance is Taylor Russell from Waves. My number six, the other film that has two nominations for this category, Zhou Yao Zhang for Parasite. Um, if you are not familiar with Zhou Yao Zhang in Parasite, uh, or Chou Yao Zhang, INDB calls her Zhou. Wikipedia says Chou. Asian Wiki says Chou. Rakuten Wiki says Zhou. So uh, it's one of the two. Uh, she plays the upper class mother in Parasite. And there's so many. I mean, so many of the performances in Parasite uh, were in contention to make this nominate these make this category, uh, from uh, Park So Dam to uh, the lower class mother, upper class father. Like I thought, all of them were were fantastic, and and ultimately they couldn't all quite fit. But uh, for me, it's Zhou uh, Yao Zhang as the upper class mother who is the one that stands out. Uh, besides Song Kang Ho, and I think the you know I wish she was getting a little more recognition, and I mean I wish Song Kang Ho is not getting any recognition, she's not going to get any. But I think her role, contrary to uh, say uh, the her husband's role in the movie, is a lot more unsuspecting. I think she's given more. Uh, more screen time uh, than her husband you know we get mostly it's her when we see um when when the the con starts when we first start seeing this lower class family integrate into the upper class family's house she is the gatekeeper she is the one um greeting everybody discussing everything with everybody she's talking about her son she's talking about her daughter she wants to listen and and learn and hear the the way that these tutoring the tutor sessions are going to go uh, she is the one that, uh, you know, the conversation she has with Song Hang Ho uh, about um, their housekeeper and tuberculosis. You know, I love her in that scene when the couple of times we see her uh, coming up the escalator, coming up the stairs into the house, and her facial expressions, I think, are fantastic. Uh, she's the most responsive, most reactive of all the characters, almost, it, it feels like. Uh, far more than her husband, who, you know, kind of stonewalls a lot of the scenes. You know, she is the one, like, freaking out, and, and she sells it so well. 
uh, you know, she is playing this character who has to be proper, uh, above everything. But I love when we see, like, every little thing that unravels within her throughout the course of the film, whether it's the, the aforementioned tuberculosis, whether it's, um, you know, the situation that happens with uh, her husband's driver, whether it's her own son and, and what she learns about his art and, and et cetera, et cetera. You know, her, it feels like every other scene, something is unraveling in her life. And yet every time that happens to her, Zhou Yao Zhang, it, it, it feels like she, the way she acts, it's like, oh my goodness, this is like the first thing that's ever gone wrong in my life ever. And it's, it's indignant. It's, it's um, entitled and it, it works. And I think it, Zhou Yaozhang sells it so, so well. And, and she is so effective at being this character, at being the person who is, you know, uh, in her element as an upper class person, but constantly put in a situation where she's like, oh my goodness, how is that possible? Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And uh, it's great. I, I, I love her in this movie so much. So number six from Parasite Zhou Yao Zhang. Number five, Florence Pugh from Little Women. I'm so glad she got an Oscar nomination. She absolutely deserved it. Uh, totally earns it from start to finish. Um, Florence Pugh, uh, I mentioned before that uh, the film spans multiple timelines. We get to see all the characters young and we get to see them old. And uh, unlike other films that have done things like this in the past, uh, well, not all of them necessarily, but most films, I think, that do a multi-time story give you a different actor when they're young and a different actor when they're old. Little Women does not do this. Uh, Florence Pugh plays younger Amy and older Amy. I'm pretty sure she plays Amy or Joe. I might have even used the wrong word before. Um, da, da, da. <clears throat> uh, but uh, suffice to say, um, and I'm still kind of looking it up. Why is it taking so long to find? I don't know. Just go to IMDb. That's where all the answers are. No, I had it right. Saoirse is Joe. Uh, Florence is Amy. I had it right. I shouldn't have even looked it up. Um, so I've heard critiques that because Florence Pugh is playing young Amy, it comes across awkward a little bit. She's obviously much older than Amy's supposed to be. She's And because she's acting so young, it feels awkward. Uh, and But then a lot of those same people are very, very um, supportive of the performance she gives as older Amy. And, you know, maybe that has to do with the fact that we're flipping back and forth between the two timelines. And, and so when you see all of these actors acting, you know, actually their age or maybe even a couple of years older than their age, it feels a little unreasonable to then go back, you know, eight, six years ago before that to when they were much younger. I never really had that problem. I thought, you know, from Emma Watson to Saoirse to, to Florence Pugh to... Um, to Eliza Scanlon, I thought they all did a really good job of being the age they were supposed to be uh, and in the scenes where they're supposed to be those ages. I remember, gosh, I remember in elementary school, this is a pool. 
I remember in elementary school, this guy showed up. He was kind of, we were all in the library. It was like an assembly sort of thing, but just for my class at the time. I think he talked to everybody who went to the library that day or week maybe. And uh, he's this older guy. And in my head, I remember him being like ancient, but I was, you know, like eight. So he was probably in his like 40s. And he was talking about acting. You know, he's a stage actor. He was telling us that, you know, what he was like, what do I do if I want to play somebody shorter than me? Do I hunch over? You know, if I want to play a kid, do I hunch over? Do I try to make myself look smaller? And he does it for us. And, of course, it doesn't work. It looks really weird and awkward. Like, nobody believes this is a kid. It doesn't make any sense. And he's like, no, of course not. That's stupid. That makes no sense. But, what? so he's like, so what can I do to play somebody younger? And he, you know, he pulls out like a multicolored hat and, uh, you know, he, he starts chewing and smacking on like a, a piece of bubble gum. And, uh, you know, he picks up a, a little bat and starts like kind of swinging it around and, you know, act, you know, he acts like he's a kid. He, you know, he affects younger elements of, of what a person would be. And so, of course, it's, you know, I know it's this 40 year old guy who's dressed up kind of like a kid now, but even still like he definitely looks younger he feels like a younger person now uh maybe not 12 or, or 15 but 30 sure you know it's it's not a huge stretch and so in little women for the entire cast uh of of the women you know they all kind of do that they all act younger you know obviously Florence Pugh doesn't look much younger in the older times than she does when in the younger story uh, timeline that she does in the older timeline. Although there are parts of it from the makeup and, and the costumes that it lend itself to that effect. But, you know, she's acting younger. She's speaking with a different um, inflection and connotation. She's, she's using uh, a younger vocabulary. Her face is, is looser. You know, she's not as serious. She's not as, uh, direct and amy is a character that the events the things that she does are pretty awful she's pretty ridiculous in this movie and yet you i i just i fell in love with florence Pugh in this movie she's so good at being amy and she makes you really root for amy in the end which is a testament because you don't generally do that with little women root for amy um she's able to make amy likable without neutralizing and neutering who she is uh, which is a good thing which is important so my number five best supporting performance uh is florence Pugh from little women number four number four shu zhen zhao xiao shu zhen nai nai from the farewell uh you know i <sighs> this is what one two um there's a there's a lot of this this here is a big foreign presence here uh, the farewell one of the big three films for me uh in a foreign language that really broke through in uh, a meaningful way parasite and portrait of lady on fire being the other two and a lot of that has to do with Aquafina and uh, Nai Nai. 
you know, she is the titular, not the titular, the, the character in The Farewell who is afflicted with the cancer, with the, you know, life-ending disease that no one tells her about. And it's fascinating to watch Zhao act as this character. You know, it's it's one thing if it's a real person who does not know what they have going through life and, and doing the things that they would normally do. It is a completely different situation uh, when you are an actor who knows that your character does not know about this thing and you have to act like you yourself do not know that thing. And it's, I, I mean, I, like, I'm sure that's just describing acting and what acting is, but there's just, there's another layer to it above that to me of, man, you are, you know, uh, yeah, like how it's like, don't think of a pink elephant, right? You know, and you, you think of one. And it's like, don't, okay, you know you don't have cancer. 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 And you're just like repeating that over and over again. And you have to figure out a way to convey that that's you. That's who you are. You're, you're just a normal person. You have absolutely no, you know, and it's one of those things where like it might have even been easier if, you know, Lulu Wang tells <laughs> Zhao Shuzhen uh, nothing, right? Like does not give her that information. She has no idea. And I don't know how that affects. You know, if that were the case, I'd, I don't know how that would have affected the performance. I don't know how that would have affected the movie. But the tenderness that she has, the joy for life, the, you know, she she pulls it off so well, whatever the case may be. And, you know, it's it's heartbreaking as a viewer to know that this nice, this wonderful, warm person isn't going to last as long as she should. Isn't going to survive you know, forever, the way, at least not the forever that we think about, you know, not the, not that she's young, not that it's, you know, the greatest of all shames that she's passing as, at, at, you know, as a teenager or 20 year old, but it's still before her time in that sense. And it's a disappointment. And so seeing her in that way, Growing up, um, you know, Aquafina idolizes her. And, you know, every scene that Aquafina and Zhao and Xu Zhen Zhao share is perfect. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And, and there's so many different layers and perspectives that are brought to those scenes. And uh, it's, it's, you know, such a great, great ability of both Aquafina and Xuxin Zhao that they are able to pull that off um, given the parameters of this movie and given the parameters of this relationship that the characters share with each other. Uh, so my number four, Xuxin Zhao from The Farewell. For number three, we go back to Waves with Sterling K. Brown. Um, similarly to Taylor Russell, Sterling K. Brown gets a lot of great emotional scenes in this movie. He shares one with her, uh, by the lakeside, but unlike her, uh, he is much more consistently present throughout the film. Uh, in the first half, we see a lot of interactions he, that he has with Kelvin Harrison Jr. And then in the second half, uh, we see a lot of interactions that he has with Taylor Russell and with his wife and so on. And 
it's really great to see like I think Sterling K. Brown is fantastic. I think he's a really good actor and this movie gives him a wide range of emotions to play with. You know, he gets to be very aggressive and and confrontational at times, especially with Calvin Harrison Jr. Uh, but he gets to be quiet and introspective and emotional and vulnerable uh, with with Taylor Russell. And um, I think it's you know the variety of 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 uh, sides to. Sterling K. Brown in this movie that make him so good, uh, and and unlike Taylor Russell, I think you know as someone who's been acting for quite some time now, he he's got an intensity to him, and his character in this in Waves is nothing if he if not intense. He is wow. He is you know just unbelievably focused. You know he's got. It makes such great use of Sterling K. Brown's eyes that are so wide and so, you know, hyper-focused and, and laser-intense, uh, you know, staring you down and, and wilting you by his sheer force of will. It's, it's really, really astonishing. And, you know, the scenes that are not dialogue scenes where he's in, you know, where they're sitting in the church pew and he just kind of, looks over at Kelvin Harrison Jr. And, like, he's got a... It just says everything in that one look over. The scene where they're... You know, when he's when he's arm wrestling with Kelvin Harrison Jr. earlier on in the film, you know, he, he just brings so much to these roles that he's given. Um, you know, I loved him in Black Panther, even though it was kind of a short role, small role. And this is just an extension of, of, of that skill, that, that ability that he has to take over every scene that he is in. And, um, yeah, I, man, Sterling K. Brown, so good, so good. My number two, runner-up, so that leaves us with, as it seems to be happening a lot, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Parasite, um... Although I guess this is just the second time that this has happened after screenplay. But <clears throat> um, in this case, uh, it's going to be Portrait of a Lady on Fire as our runner-up with Adele Hanel. She is the portrait. She is the lady on fire. And uh, Celine Siama has worked with Adele Hanel quite a few times. And I think they're a great duo a great pair they've made great films and in this one in portrait Adele Hanel is this mysterious reserved woman prepared to marry a guy she does not know um, subjected to a portrait that she doesn't really want to have done and throughout the film she more so than uh Nomi Merlant, uh the lead, is put through a lot of considerable anguish. Uh and it's not very visible anguish every time, but she has to encounter and overcome a lot of obstacles as this as a character. She needs to 
reckon with uh, not, not only her impending marriage, but the relationship she has with her mother, the relationship she has with Merlant's character of Marianne, the relationship that she has with their handmaid, um, her relationship with the outdoors even. You know, she is a locked up person for at the start of this film who just wants to be outside, who wants to be free. And you you can see at times in her performance this sort of childlike innocence kind of creeping up. And then in other scenes, you know, she feels twice as old as she is. She feels worldly, weathered, um, um, uh, like someone preparing to to ascend up ascend to the gallows almost like i'm just marching toward to the end at any at anymore and and that is depressing that is very depressing and i think it is you know hanel is able to pull that off on both sides flawlessly she's so good uh at as this layered reserved role in this great performance you know i think merlant's given a little more fire to her role as the lead uh but i love hanel's performance i think she brings a lot of complexities to her i think the character as written is already somewhat complex and and mysterious and there's this there's something about hanel's face where She's able to for her lips to be curled down at the corners and for her to still be smiling. And that is eventually that is something that I, I think is is so unique about her and so effective in this movie. You know, a lot of those sly small smiles that she gives, but her lips are still pointed downward in somewhat of a slight frown and it's really interesting and it fits her character so well um i i loved her in this movie so so much and it's unfortunate that she can't win but uh she did not give the best supporting performance because best supporting performance of the year for me is song kang ho uh he flirts with the line of lead performance in the film i think but ultimately i gotta give him put him in the supporting category and primarily that's because the movie starts and ends from his son's perspective and uh for the first like 40 minutes of the movie or i guess for the first like 30 minutes of the movie song kang ho is almost non-existent you know he gets like a couple of lines here and there so Far more of a supporting character, ultimately, for me. But because of it, he he takes over this movie. He is... He's such a child, it feels like. I That's that's kind of how I feel about it, you know. When we see the family, you know, in their slums, in their, you know, poor housing. And we see how... You know, unfortunately, they live people peeing right outside their window in the middle of the night because they're drunk. Uh, you know, the only way to make ends meet is to be building pizza boxes and, and so on and so forth. He doesn't feel like the head of a family. He's not corralling his kids and, and telling them what to do. This, you know, the same way that his counterpart in in the other part, you know, in the upper class is doing. 
he's just he's with the kids like they're all together they're all equal they're all the same and you know when we see his son teaching him the lines to say uh for later on in the film it's you know i can't even fathom the same type of thing happening in the upper class family and and we get a sort of parallel there when the birthday party is happening the stage is set for this you know makeshift engagement of of you know indians and um cowboys and the the kid has no input really it's it's all at least not that we see it's all being told from the father's perspective you know he set it up he's the com- he's in command he's do- telling him what to do and song kang ho on the other hand like happy to listen to his son son's got plenty of great ideas happy to listen to his daughter she's got plenty of great ideas they're they're and you know the ages are what they are but i don't know he he feels so much down to earth because of that and so when we see him transition into the guy that he becomes this sort of role model not role model but uh the sort of de facto head of the family the you know taking charge as they transition into this upper class family's house it becomes a lot more i know you get to see this transition of his character that's a little more progressive it's a little more impactful and i think that that is very powerful and and it's a huge testament to song kang ho i think he makes this movie as evocative as it is he in instills it with all of the emotions that it has uh which you know is is just fantastic i I think it's it's really impressive uh the way that he's you know he's the one who's able to transition from genre to genre he's able one that goes from like this is a con movie to this is a thriller to this is like almost sci-fi in a way you know it it flirts between all those different things sides and uh he's so game for all of them and it's more so than any of the other actors in the movie and he gets a lot of different sides to his character a lot of different uh you know emotional beats i think more so than some of the other characters he gets you know especially in when the the flood happens you know he gets a lot of he gets some of those scenes where it's like damn you know we this is awful this is this is a travesty this is disgusting and you get a lot of his thoughts on the upper class family and and the way they operate and and uh his feelings on them and and then especially when the twist quote-unquote happens in the film he is the one i think he that's kind of when he decides he needs to take charge and and you know he's handling that side of things and i think song kang ho picture perfect in parasite uh my best supporting performance of 2019 song kang ho so uh as I generally do the sixth category, always best original song. 
like I mentioned at the top of the episode, not going to be playing snippets of the songs uh, as I mention them. So uh, I will just be listing their names. And if you'd like, you can always go back and listen to the intro again and uh, pop back down to like the two hour and 10 mark for the best song category. So the nominees for best original song are The Dead Don't Die, The Dead Don't Die, Grand Escape, Weathering With You, I Punched Keanu Reeves, Always Be My Maybe, Into the Unknown, Frozen 2, and Show Yourself, Frozen 2. Coming in at number five is the Oscar-nominated Into the Unknown from Frozen 2. I like this song, uh, but unfortunately, it's the Let It Go of Frozen 2, and it doesn't have nearly the power, nearly the moment uh, that that song had in that movie. It's a little, uh, little lackluster overall. It, you know, it, it, it's not bad. Like I, I it's the most um, radio friendly, I guess, of the songs, and you know, the Brendan Urie version is really good, but. It just, it's missing something. It feels a little too generic. It feels a little too straightforward. It feels a little too simplistic in in what it is. And it's doing the same thing that Let It Go did. Uh, which is why, as much as I do like it, and, and it does earn its spot here. I mean, Tina Menzel's voice is fantastic. The way it's used in the movie um, is is fine and, and, and more than fitting. But uh, it is... It's kind of the the high end of 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 like the second tier uh, for me this year, as far as original songs go. Uh, so it it only ends up uh, making it to the fifth spot, and it was close. It, it's there's a bunch of other songs that I think uh, were fighting over this spot, and you know, Weathering with You had other songs that were looking to find in here. The Lego Movie uh, had a couple of songs trying to get into this spot as well. Um, even I would say Aladdin Speechless was fighting for this spot, and uh, ultimately Into the Unknown is what what pulled it out for me. <clears throat> so number five is Into the Unknown. Number four is I punched Keanu Reeves. Uh, so if if Into the Unknown is the top of the second tier, I punched Keanu Reeves is the bottom of the first tier, and part of that is just because it's a credit song. Um, <clears throat> the other three songs on the other four songs on the list are not credit songs, and it gets there on sheer force of will. It if you've seen Always Be My Maybe, a Netflix film, there is a substantial cameo from Keanu Reeves, and at one point, um, Randall Park's character punches him in the face, and it's a big deal. You know, I, I think. The, the the movie you know elevates Keanu Reeves to this god status symbol which you know depending on who you ask isn't that far from the truth and and Keanu Reeves is absolutely having fun with it and he's really funny in the movie and so when you get to the credits and this song plays it's i don't know it you know a lot of a substantial amount of time has passed between the actual event happening in the film and the credits rolling and it brings it all back 
It rem- it reminds you of the best part of this movie, uh, as far as I'm concerned, and you know that's that's what it should do. You know, it, it resurrects those memories, those those ex- the uh, ex- the feeling and experience of seeing him punch Keanu Reeves and uh, the entire Keanu Reeves element of the movie and makes the movie more enjoyable. You know, it. it whether or not you like how the film actually ends, uh, it it makes the film go out on a high note, and I think it does a really good job in doing so. And the lyrics are funny. The song itself is fine. I I don't think the song it's on its own is is great, um, but I think it is serviceable uh, without the accompanying think movie element to it. But it 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 makes it into the top tier for me, and and the bottom of it, but still the top tier. So, number four, I punched Keanu Reeves. Number three is The Dead Don't Die. Uh, This zombie Jim Jarmusch film is super meta, and there are multiple times throughout the film where the characters refer to the script that is for the film that they're in, and they play this song a couple of times throughout the film you know when they get they get in the car they turn on the radio and it's the dead don't die which is the title of the movie which is also referred to within the movie and i'm i'm a sucker for meta films i like the dead don't die Uh, i don't love it but i do like it quite a bit and i think this aspect of it it could have been something silly and uh, you know, if you if you're familiar with Jim Jarmusch films, there's always a chance they can veer into the silly. And I think The Dead Don't Die, as a film, does every once in a while. But he treats this song uh, with a lot of respect. I thought he, you know, it, it recurs a few times, and every time, it's, you know, it's obviously a huge, you know, wink to the audience, but it's still given enough of a of a presence within its within the movie it it means something to these characters it it hangs over the film uh in a way that i really appreciate it really helps to um contextualize you know where they are in this film and what's about to happen and how things are going to move through uh, how the characters are going to respond and it it provides an easy analog to the meta element of this movie uh, without, you know, sort of mugging for the camera, in a sense. And uh, on top of that, it's a, it's a fairly solid song. It's not a song I'm probably going to listen to on its own, but uh, as a song, I think I would say it's better than I punched Keanu Reeves. Uh, the um, who, who does it? Uh, it's... Uh, what's his name? I looked it up when I was making the cutting together... The um, the long, the the intro element uh, of of this episode, and it's Sturgill Simpson. That's right, Sturgill Simpson. And he, I don't know, he he's got a really good voice. It fits the movie. It and and I don't know. I, I kind of would have thought it would be a little more of a um, what's the who am I thinking of? He's got a deeper gravelier voice i would have thought it's more like that but it's a little higher up than i expected and it ends up it ends up working out really really well i thought in the film so 
it's, you know, The Dead Don't Die, I think, is a... It, really, it's a good song, and it's used well in the in the movie in a way that is very different, uh, you know, when you especially when we get to our top two. Both of them are... Their use is a little more conventional than how The Dead Don't Die uh, is utilized within its own... its titular film. So... Number three, The Dead Don't Die. So, Frozen and Weathering With You, two animated films, both taking the top two spots, or taking the top two spots in this category. My number two, and it's close, uh, but not as probably not as close as uh, fans of Grand Escape will want it to be, uh, but number two is Grand Escape. And that... Presented it its own issues in as far as making the intro because it's not in English, and so it it's a really wonky transition from the key in Keanu Reeves to the key in Kitaru uh, towards the end of that song. But I did I did what I could with what I had. This song plays over, for my money, the most emotionally impactful moment of the movie. Uh, I won't get into spoilers because. I don't think everyone has seen it, and I certainly wouldn't expect everyone to have seen it. It hasn't made a ton of money at the box office, and uh, didn't really come out until a couple of weeks ago. So, I'll avoid that side of things, but when you listen to this song, or if you listen to this song, you know, the part that I played in the intro is the end of the song, but there's a a very slow and methodic build-up at the beginning of the track that... Is, it sounds like raindrops, and if you know the movie, weathering maybe gives it away, you know, the weather plays a very pivotal role in this film. Music as well plays a huge role in this movie. Uh, uh, the the script, when it was originally written, was first given to the... Um, uh, the... to uh, uh, the singer for um radwimps the band and they he read it unless radwimps is a person i think it's a band uh he read it came up with a couple of songs for the movie and sent it back to uh the director and so like this this movie was born with the music you know it's not a situation where the music came in all completely afterward it happened kind of simultaneously and I think in some cases the music inspired a lot of the scenes in the film and you can feel it when you watch the movie the music permeates throughout it is a huge element uh, when the songs a song starts to play um, the volume of it is is very loud which is a little odd uh, you know it doesn't because the song like the the scene is still happening and we still have dialogue over top of the song but the song's lyrics are very loud and and almost drown out some of the dialogue in the movie which is very different from how a movie works in hollywood and how when you know when you watch a movie like suicide squad with you know the soundtrack that it has or something to that effect a lot of songs that do their thing but you generally won't have dialogue if the song is really loud, or if there is dialogue, the song will be dialed back a bit. Weathering With You does not do that, and it's a very interesting choice that I think pays off a lot more than it doesn't, and 
this uh, this is Grand Escape for me uh, was what informed a lot of the emotion of that moment. It's a huge uh, climax, uh, tumultuous, um, ac- uh, you know, grand moment, and Grand Escape behind it. It, you know, it, it builds, it has its crescendo, just like that moment does, and it really manages to, you know, convey the the release of, of sort of tension and and, and uh, expression that's happening uh, in, in this movie and, and between its two main characters. So, I love it. It... Uh, you know, it, it's a very, very good song. It comes close, uh, but doesn't quite reach number one. So my number two is Grand Escape. Best song. Best song. 2019 is Show Yourself from Frozen 2. And Frozen, Frozen 1, nominated for Let It Go, did not win. Uh, it came in fifth that year. Uh, and... Uh, Lost out to a handful of other songs, but finally the sequel is returned and will claim the top spot. And I, I don't know. I think like this year is not the strongest for original songs. I, I mean, I like a lot of these songs, and I like a lot of the songs from other movies. There's other songs in Weathering. There's other songs in Frozen. There's other there's songs from Lego Movie and, and Speechless and so on. But I don't know. It just uh, they're just it's just missing. More. I, I wish there were more uh, musicals. There are just never enough musicals for me. Frozen 2, show yourself. This is the big moment of this movie. I think show yourself is a better song than let it go. I think uh, it has better... You know, let it go is just a, a strictly a power ballad. It doesn't have much variance within it. Show yourself has that variance. It, it, it undulates soft and loud... Uh, powerful and restrained and and it's about you know it's the next step in in Elsa's journey as a character from letting everything go to to revealing herself as as who she is and and what you know it's a there's a there's a subtle difference there in these characters and you know it's a shame that the movie pushed into the unknown as its uh you know song of choice to be nominated they saw Let It Go, they, they made it Let It Go, but I think Show Yourself is the more complex, more layered song, it comes at the climax of the film for Elsa, it informs a lot of her choices, both prior, during, and after the song occurs, and I don't know, it, it just, it for me, it, it ends up being kind of the showstopper, despite not being that right kind of power ballad style that Into the Unknown and, and um, Let It Go were. Uh, you also have the ad- addition of, um, oh, uh, what's uh, the voice of her mom as well involved in the song, uh, Evan Rachel Wood, which comes in and it's a little ethereal, it's a little um, like it's a little off camera kind of a thing, you know, this response to what she's saying uh to what else is saying and like that aspect of the song I, I love that it's it's beautiful it's a little haunting at times and yeah it it's it's really really wonderful in my opinion and 
again, I think it's a shame. It it ends up being left out of the conversation in favor of Into the Unknown. So, best original song for me, Show Yourself from Frozen 2. All right, we are moving right along here. Category, the seventh out of ten categories now. We're going to jump up to the top uh, almost with best director. Best director. And the nominees are Noah Baumbach, Marriage Story. Greta Gerwig, Little Women. Bong Joon-ho, Parasite. Celine Siama, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And Trey Edward Schultz, Waves. All right. And looking at this list here, uh, Greta Gerwig has been nominated before. Uh, Celine Siama has been nominated and won before. I don't think... Uh, Bombach has not been nominated for director before, only screenplay. Bong has not been nominated uh, before for director. And Trader Schultz has also not been nominated for director. So a little bit of a mix of people who you know have already proven themselves to me and, and some others who are proving themselves now. Number five is Trey Edward Schultz for Waves. I'm a big fan of Waves. Uh, I wish it had gotten a little more recognition throughout the award season. And by that, I mean any recognition. It did not. And part of that is Schultz wrote and directed the film himself. Uh, he is telling a story about toxic masculinity. He is telling it in a way that hasn't been done before. To my knowledge, it is a very unique style in which he tells this film. There are a lot of fascinate, fascinating choices. Uh, I'm, we, I've already talked about the score quite a bit. We talked about um, Taylor Russell and Sterling K. Brown as supporting performances. A lot of things uh, going on in this movie uh, from Calvin Harrison Jr. And, and, and Lucas Hedges as well. Big parts of this movie that... Schultz manages to combine in such a way, and I think he treats this story similarly to, um, to to how Greta Gerwig treats Little Women. She takes a story we've seen a lot of, seen a ton of times before, shift twists it in a very unique and interesting way, and in her case, layering it uh, so that the past and present happen simultaneously. Uh, and by doing so, creates a whole entirely new uh, story that we haven't seen before. It makes it fresh and unique. Waves, we've seen to toxic masculinity a lot. Uh, half of the like half of the films released this year involve toxic masculinity to some some level. And <clears throat> what Trade Richolts does, he he makes that movie, and then he makes something else on top of it he he adds the part of the movie that we don't ever see and you know that's a lot most of that comes through taylor russell's character and it's why i think she does such a, you know she has such a great job and such a great role in this movie because of what schultz is providing her because of the role that she is um because of the how well written her character is and 
the way that he orchestrates this whole thing, you know, this is not an easy thing to pull off. It's not a style of, of or a structure of film that I see often, and I see hundreds and thousands of movies a year. And if I had known going into this movie what I was going to get from it, I would have been a little daunted. I would have been a little uh, concerned because I wouldn't have expected it to work well, if at all. And I think Schultz is able to pull it off flawlessly. He enables, he's able to shift tone uh, on a on a dime. He is able to elevate this this original this toxic masculinity story to being something so much grander than it really is in a way that most filmmakers can't he's able to give us a wide array of performances especially from sterling k brown who is the biggest character that features throughout the entirety of the film whereas many other characters are a little more uh, focused on specific parts of the movie and he makes a lot of very creative and interesting choices uh you know we get a lot of scenes that take place within a car listening to music and uh you know uh, nausea warning aside they these moments are feel so lived in he's he he makes so much of this movie feel natural feel real feel feel human that you know, you look at the toxic masculinity and, and, and permeating through every single frame of Joker, and it's a great depiction of it, in a sense, but it's not real, you know, because it's Joker, because it's Gotham, because there's Batman, there's just this side of it that it's not real, and this is, Waves is, is, is maybe too real, in a sense, you know, it feels far more actualized than the other versions of this kind of story that I see which which is great you know it it is challenging it's it's a very difficult film to understand to to uh to come to terms with you know it, it takes you on this journey and by the end of it you've laughed and you've cried and and you've been afraid for for these characters and you've been relieved for these characters it really is challenging in that way and i think it all you know all flows back to schultz and the way he's kind of com uh, conducting this symphony as it were making sure all these pieces are working together because there are a lot of moving pieces to create a film results in this final product uh so for me uh it's waves at number five and given how positive i am on waves uh it should give you an idea of how much i love all of these movies and the direction they're in my number four is noah bombach in marriage story and marriage story another film i love uh i think you know, Bombach nominated here and not for screenplay. I think that you know he he his screenplay was like number six or seven for me this year. So it's not like I didn't like the screenplay. It's a very very good screenplay. It's really well written. I think his direction is a little bit better comparatively in this movie. He's making these decisions 
within these this film within these character for these characters that feel that that kind of amplify the emotions that they are feeling and what i mean by that is the the movie opens with the two of them reading these very long notes that they've written about everything they love about each other and this is a movie about divorce and so it's a very interesting open it's a very it, you know it informs you so much about who these characters are and also informs you about the relationship that they've had with each other and and how that's blossomed and flourished and somehow it has all of a sudden fallen apart uh, which is disappointing you know seeing any relationship fall apart is is disappointing because you don't go into a relationship generally expecting for it to fail and watching that play out over the next two hours or so is heartbreaking because we know how much they loved each other yeah you see and 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 I think Bombach's direction, the way he uh, gives us both sides of the story, I, I think as far as screen time is concerned, I think he leans a little toward uh, Adam Driver's side. But there's a lot of parts in for both Driver and Johansson's parts in this um, sides in the story that you know you're on their side, and then you're not, and then you are, and then you're not, and then you know you. You just it, it it flips back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, uh, far better than say like Kramer versus Kramer, which is almost completely uh, Dustin Hoffman, pro Dustin Hoffman, all about Dustin Hoffman. And you know, given how uh, supposedly you know real this movie is up is to Bombach's you know truth, it's it's impressive that he's able to give Johansson an equal voice or as as close to an equal voice as he as he manages and I I think she kind of is able to push it a little further with with her performance in the same way that Driver does you know he his character does some bad stuff too you know he's not flawless neither of them are they they both have their problems and both of their problems are at times minuscule and then the lawyers make them out to be make mountains out of those molehills but there are issues that are severe that are significant are real problems within their relationship that sort of go un unchecked at times and i think bombach's delicate balance between knowing how much of each side of the story to tell um knowing how far he can push that uh, you know Laura Dern's evil divorce lawyer and and Ray Liotta's divorce lawyer and showing the contrast between the two of them and Alan Alda as as you know still a divorce law- divorce lawyer still someone who realizes the the crappiness of the situation but somebody who feels kinder hearted and 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 sweeter at at his core um you know he's able to pull these visceral and powerful performances out of both Driver and Johansson which is, you know, it just so to get to be able to get these guys to be so dangerous and and violent at times, and then for us to still love them and care for them, both even is is a testament to the craft of this movie. So 
Number four, Noah Baumbach. Number three is Greta Gerwig for Little Women. Uh, I've talked about it a, a bit, and and you know, screenplay is great. Uh, the performances are great. The score is wonderful, and Greta Gerwig at the top of it all knows this. She feels like you know the more films I've seen, I see from her after as an actor from Fran- all the way back to Frances Ha up through Lady Bird and now Little Women. I, I she just she knows exactly what she wants to do with these movies. She knows exactly what story she is telling and where she is going with that story. Uh, she knows how it's going to inform the contemporary view of what her movie is. You know, this is a movie that takes place a long time ago, and yet it feels incredibly relevant and fresh in today's viewing of it, which, I'm, you know, she knew that. She went in expecting it. That was the whole point, at the, at, you know, essentially... And giving her, like, the keys to this movie was, was a brilliant move because she she restructures it, as I've mentioned, and I think that was a b- fantastic job uh, on her part. She, uh, you know, she a- adds scenes that we don't generally see. Uh, she gives us more of a reason to care about all four of the kids, as well as Laura Dern playing the mother, uh, of the women, you know, I think, I, I think what she does behind the camera in, you know, the way she moves the clothing, you know, the way that Joe and Laurie, you know, kind of wear each other's clothing is such an, a fascinating um, decision to make from, from a costume and, and standpoint and how she manages to play these characters against each other at times when you know they're in such different parts of their life you know I I thought Emma Watson does she kind of has the most thankless role in this movie it feels to me uh which I kind of understand you know she's the oldest her story feels wrapped up a lot sooner than everyone else's but where in in previous iterations of this film, from my memory at least, uh, it it all kind of flows through Joe, and and this movie obviously Joe is the main character, but I thought I felt like you know Emma Watson and Scanlan and Pew, and even Laura Dern and and Laurie, I felt like we got so much of them, and I thought Gerwig elevated their roles to the extent that they were really given agency that they don't generally get in the previous versions of this film and it's not like this is four hours long it's not like she's adding you know an hour to this movie that the other movies didn't have it's relatively the same length and yet the economy of her scenes and and how she's able to get so much out of far less uh, at least from a from a running time perspective you know just speaks to her precision as a director, I, I really impressed. Uh, so for the third time uh, today, after supporting performance and screenplay, we have the final two of Portrait and Parasite. Portrait one screenplay, Parasite one supporting actor. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is going to fall as the runner-up in director. Um, 
Celine Siyama not able to pull off a second victory here. And, you know, it's so close. These movies are are so close to me. Uh, I think Celine Siyama's direction is fantastic. You know, I, I don't have anything bad to say about it. I think she finds a story that, you know, it's an original screenplay. It's It's a story that I would have never known, I would have never thought of, and yet she not only thinks of it, she actualizes it, she re- she, she presents it in, in this beautiful way um, that feels as though it, it feels like it's a part of her. It feels like something she's been into. It feels like she was there. You know, she knows the ins and outs of it so, so well. I talked about the editing, how much I like the editing, the subtle humor involved in this movie. Uh, she knows how to diffuse uh, attention in a way that feels organic, in a way that feels natural. She knows how to, you know, get her characters to give her the performance that they need to give. And, you know, we talked about Adele Hanel as as supporting and how, you know, not only is she uh, a fantastic actor, but she's more so like perfect for this role and you can feel at least i i i i I feel like you can feel the way that siyama's informing this performance um and the sort of i i can see a i can see where other act other directors would have given this performance more room to to flourish in a sense to be bigger to be louder to be you know, this is a woman who is going to be married to a guy she doesn't have any, you know, doesn't know, and you know has feels a type of way about that. And there's a lot of potential there for that role to get a little bigger, to get more bombastic, more excited, more more, you know, louder. And she doesn't. She she holds these performances, and and you know it includes Marianne and Heloise at the same as well. She pulls both of those performances in, and restrains them. And given the time period that this movie is taking place in, given the situation and relationship between all these characters, it makes sense. It, it's, uh, it's, it's a very smart decision, and it's one that you can feel not only in, in Marianne and Heloise, but in The, the Handmaiden and in uh, Heloise's mother. You know, it's, it's everywhere, and I, I, you, know, you can feel Siyama's fingerprints all over this movie. And that is the best part for me. You know, she is making these decisions. She's choosing how long to give us to wait before we see Heloise's face. You know, it's it's a big buildup. And, and, you know, she spends, prior to that moment, we spend so much time just kind of languishing with Marianne in, in not only her journey to get to, the castle but to you know in her five ten minutes of her just like unpacking her stuff and settling in and sneaking downstairs to grab a bite of bite of food whereas i think a less disciplined director rushes us there or shows us halloween at the start and i think there's so many decisions made in this movie that bear out you know what it needs to be rather than what it wants to be 
at times. And I think Siyama has her finger on that pulse. So number two is Lane Siyama for Portrait of a Lady in Fire. And my best director is Bong Joon-ho. I'll be pulling for him on Sunday night uh, at the Oscars, as even though I, I think the odds are fairly slim that he pulls off a victory there. But Parasite, it just, man, it's it's such a beautiful film. And I think Bong, you know, I talked about the editing, I talked about the writing, talked about some of the performances. The reason Bong edges out Siam in this category for me uh, is that he has such a control over the tone of his film. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, as amazing as it is, doesn't shift tones, really. Uh, which, you know, is not a knock against it. It just doesn't do that. Parasite does, uh, and not just once, a couple of times. And that is not an easy thing to pull off flawlessly within a film. It, it you know, can be a little bumpy. It can be a little um, jarring to viewers. And yet, Pong makes it feel like the most natural thing. He makes it feel like there's nothing easier than switching tones within your movie. Uh, which is which is ridiculous. It's it's absurd, and yet it's wonderful at the same time. I think uh, <clears throat> his ability to utilize every facet of the camera, you know, use the cinematography. At times, the movie feels like a ballet. At times, the movie is a heist. At times, you know, the movie is like almost a disaster film, you know, like when the flood is happening, it it's filmed kind of like a disaster film. We get these big wide open shots, all the water rushing through, you know, people scrambling, floating on doors. And it's not an intimate, you know, character piece at that point for Bong. It's not, you know, the, the con element of the movie, the heist element, the class, you know, that kind of goes out the window and it's just like a survival thing. And he moves from one thing to the next so easily. Uh, and he, he just has such a control over this film in a way that I don't think anyone else compares to. And, you know, pre presume, presumptive winner of Best Director at the Oscars is going to be Sam Mendes. And him not being here, I don't want to take make it a knock against him. I thought he did a fantastic job uh, with in, on 1917. And, you know, he earns that win. Without a doubt, um, you know, if I extend this category to, you know, maybe up to, you know, seven or eight, nine, ten people, he's definitely there. You know, he's right outside this top five for sure. But, man, I, I think Parasite just, uh, it's just a cut above everything this year from a direction standpoint for me. So, number one, Bong Joon-ho, Parasite, best director. All right. Moving on, category number eight, uh, clipping along right now. We're going to go back to the performances and do best lead performance for the eighth category on the night. And the nominees are Aquafina, The Farewell, Adam Driver, Marriage Story, Calvin Harrison Jr., Loose, Scarlett Johansson, Marriage Story. Numi Merlant, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Lupita Nyong'o, Us, 
Joaquin Phoenix, Joker, Saoirse Ronan, Little Women, Adam Sandler, Uncut Gems, and Charlize Theron, Bombshell. Pretty eclectic group here uh, in the lead category. A lot of actors that have, a handful of actors that have had their, their spot on this list before. A bunch of newbies as well. And uh, we're going to start with number 10, and that's Adam Sandler. Uh, tons of hype around Sandler's performance in Uncut Gems. I thought, and I think it's absolutely deserved, I thought he was really, really good in the film. Uh, I don't love the film. I don't, you know, I, I've seen tons of people love uh, that, that really, really go over the moon for this movie. And, you know, more power to him. I doesn't work for me. I saw it twice, and neither time did I get it, uh, you know, up that, that high for me. But undeniably, Adam Sandler is phenomenal. Uh, it gives, you know, it, it's, I think there's this, this fat, this, this notion within his, you know, you look at his filmography and you look at Punch Drunk Love, the last time he, I guess, if you include the Meyerowitz stories, you know, he's given a handful of performances that can be considered, you know, of a very high quality. And it's almost as though because when he, he has all of these lesser performances uh, throughout his career, that it makes these feel even better than they actually are. And I'm sure there's an element to that in Uncut Gems, and, you know, it is what it is, but it you can't deny, you know, he he's just magnetic in this movie. You you can't take your eyes off of him, whether you love him, hate him, cheer for him, against him. Uh, he's, he's a pretty phenomenal guy as a performer in this movie. And uh, as Howard Ratner, he is just... You know, he's just this despicable, degenerate gambler who just makes the wrong decision 99 times out of 100. And, you know, that's uh, that's kind of who he is. Uh, you know, getting his, you know, he does a lot of screaming in this movie, which honestly is my least favorite aspect. I, I think because he's always at an 11 it neuters some of the actually, you know, more impactful scenes that he has, but he plays that, he plays being at 11 so well, you know, he plays that excited, you know, over-the-top caricature of, 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 you know, like a gambler really, really well, and so I can't fault him too much for it, but if, you know, that's kind of the biggest knock I would say that is against his performance would be just it's hard to get more invested or have a bigger reaction to something when it's always you know he's he plateaus you know five minutes into the movie and it's all the same from there number 10 Adam Sandler number nine is Kelvin Harrison Jr. in Loose haven't talked about Loose yet tonight uh, this is the only nomination it got, uh, which is the same as Uncut Gems. They only got one nomination. Calvin Harrison Jr., also in Waves. He's really good in Waves, but he commands Loose in a way that he doesn't in Waves. And, uh, you know, more screen time in Loose, more more complex of a role, uh, I think, given its its breadth. And 
it, it's really impressive what he does in this film because it's a very unique movie. It's attacking a very unique uh, idea and it requires a very talented performer at the heart of its story to convince you that uh, it's it's a, a theme that can be tackled at all. So Calvin Harrison plays a very, very uh, put-together black high schooler who, you know, he's top on the track team, he gets straight A's, he's, you know, valedictorian of his class, and then all of a sudden he becomes kind of, uh, you know, he gets put under this giant spotlight that magnifies his... Um, magnifies his potential misgivings, his potential errors, and, you know, it becomes this weird cat-and-mouse game between himself and, and Octavia Spencer, who's also very, very good in this movie, which kind of leaves you guessing all the way through, like, 99% of the film as to, you know, who's seeing things accurately, who's telling the truth, uh, where where are we going next? And I love that so much. I, I love the the will they won't they. <laughs> I guess not not in that sense, but the um, did he didn't he sort of question that hangs over loose. And I think Kelvin Harrison, in his face in his eyes, is able to be that confusing, but also you know. You know, you never feel like, I guess, it doesn't matter what scene he's in in this movie. I never know if I can really trust him. But I always know that he, uh, you know, absolutely knows where he stands within the grander scheme of things. And I think that is a very difficult presentation to pull off. And he does it very, very well. So, number nine, Kelvin Harrison Jr., loose. Number eight is Charlize Theron for Bombshell. Uh, Charlize playing Megan Kelly in this film. The prosthetics, the makeup uh, is is wonderful. Uh, best makeup uh, of the year for me. And she is... I, I don't watch Fox News. Uh, of course, I am not... I don't share their views... And I don't share a lot of other aspects of Fox News. Um, so even the story of Bombshell is one I wasn't super familiar with. I knew of it. I didn't know many of the specific details therein. Uh, but so I, I'm not really familiar with Megan Kelly. I, I don't know much about her. I don't know. You know, I, I'm sure I've seen maybe 15 minutes worth of her clips via stuff like the la last week tonight and and you know, daily show type sh type stuff and whatnot. So I didn't have a huge uh, baseline to compare this performance to, but it, it felt to me identical. Uh, and, and it, you know, it felt like it was Megan Kelly from what little I'm aware of her. You know, I've, I've seen others, you know, commenting on the same thing. And I, you know, Megan Kelly herself, having seen the film, you know, really responded to it. And I think even if it isn't exactly what Megyn Kelly is like, I think there's no denying how 
great of a performance Theron gives. She's, you know, just kind of on top of the world and watching everything go crazy around her. And it's really bizarre. And her relationship with uh, Roger Ailes and uh, Nicole Kidman's character and Mark Robbie's character and, and Mark Duplass's character, her husband... Uh, you know, all these different relationships, you know, lawyers and, and news anchors and, you know, CEOs and so forth. Trump and, and what, how, how involved, you know, his name is in this movie, not necessarily his, his character. It's a lot. There's a lot going on. And she comes across as someone who, know, you know, she, she's portraying someone who has always been kind of in control, it seems. And somehow, despite the kind of flailing that is happening at over at Fox News, she's still in control. And it's a tough, tough uh, balancing act to pull off, in my opinion, that Theron is, is more than adept at. You know, she is not only... You know, she's she's playing a character, and and you know we look at stuff like uh, I don't know, like when when um, when Bale plays Cheney or when Oldman plays uh, Churchill. You know, these are also huge characters that they you know put on the prosthetics or, or gained or lost the weight to be. And no offense to Megan Kelly, but she's certainly not as you know lasting and in, as as famous of a figure as Dick Cheney or Winston Churchill are currently. Uh, you know, she probably gets up there to close to Cheney soon, but Churchill, man, like, everybody knows Winston Churchill. So, you know, Theron does that side of it, and I think she has, she has a lot more um, control over the character than, say, you know, Bale and Oldman did in a way that gives her more flexibility and and how she can further this story and how she, you know, lets, how she's able to to act throughout Bombshell. So I loved it, thought it was really good, and, you know, Charlize Theron uh, is is just, you know, even as you know, all the way, you know, thinking back to her, her performance in Monster, you know, she gives so much to her roles, and it's, it really comes through, and, and that is very true in Bombshell. So, number eight, Charlize Theron. Number seven, uh, we jump over to Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Naomi Merlant, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. She plays the lead, of course, uh, of Marianne in the film. She has a little bit more of an uh, she she gets to play a little more outspoken of a character than Adele Hanel's uh, Heloise, but Merlant is still still a kind of reserved character. You know, she at times seems to overshadow and overpower Hanel, but even in those moments, I think Hanel kind of I don't know. She has this sneaky um, sneaky strength to her performance. And so I, I don't think, for me, I, I felt like Hanel was a better performance, you know, in, in, you know, small degrees of magnitude. But Merlant is, is, you know, she's the main character. She is the one we're following through this long film, 
and it's not that long. It's like two hours. But this this languishing film, this slow, methodical film uh, for large chunks of it. And I think her face, which we see a lot, is very evocative. You know, she she comes from the Tom Hardy school of acting with your eyes, in a sense. And, you know, she, she spends a lot of this film frustrated, uh, mostly because she can't get a portrait. She can't paint a portrait of Adele Hanel's character. And it's easy to just act frustrated the same every time. And, and I think there's so many layers to her frustration. You know, she wants to be a professional. She's used to having difficulties as a painter. You know, she mentions at one point in the film, like, she's not allowed to paint guys because that's only guys are allowed to paint guys. And she, so she knows that. Her character understands, you know, the many hoops she has to jump through. And it's, you know, there's so many more she has to jump through for this specific you know, job, you know, she has to study uh, Adele Hanel's character. We, have, we see her studying her uh, a lot throughout the film. We see her trying to catch glimpses, trying to stare, uh, trying to probe, trying to spend her time there. And I think she gets, you know, while Hanel ends up being the character that's a little more mysterious and more reserved, more ethereal in that sense, uh, Merlant is the one who is inquisitive, who is curious, who is uh, pursuing and she does that really really well without ever appearing um, too aggressive without ever appearing creepy you know it's all very straightforward and above board and when the film shifts and uh, she she kind of has this weakness she gets a little possessive at one point in the film and it it's not a great color on her but Merlant pulls it off beautifully uh and i think the subsequent you know 10 minutes after that scene are some of the best in the movie uh it's it's a really breathtaking moment and and, and pivot in portrait of Late on fire as that plays out and then we get uh, the subsequent sort of climax and um yeah merlot Numi Merlant, my number seven, best lead performance. Number six, number six is Saoirse Ronan for Little Women. Uh, Saoirse, not her first time here. Uh, she was nominated for Lady Bird uh, in the past. And I'm looking for her. Yes, Lady Bird. Uh, so her second nomination I love Saoirse Ronan. I thought, you know, I think she's very good in pretty much everything I've seen her in. Hannah, uh, Brooklyn, Atonement, Lady Bird, Little Women. And I think she's just so... She just... I, what I love about her is her ability to be vulnerable, her ability to open her character up. She's able to just kind of strip everything away. And I think you see that a lot in Joe. She's very much she very much wears her heart on her sleeve. She gets angry. She gets sad. She's happy. She's frustrated. You know, she's impulsive. She's reactionary. She's all of these different things. And those are the characters that I think Saoirse plays best. Uh, you know, Lady Bird is a lot of those aspects too. And why I think she was so good as Lady Bird. 
Um, and uh, I think that's why she's so good as Joe. Uh, you know, I think the biggest difference there is that you just there's less of her in this movie. You know, because there are so many other characters that are getting so much screen time. I think, um, you know, one or two more scenes from her, maybe shared with Laurie, would have gone a long way to push it, potentially pushing her up this list a little higher. But I, you know, there's nothing bad about her performance at all. You know, the from from the kind of from the aggressive scene she shares with Laurie on the hillside to the quieter scene she shares with Laura Dern in the um, in the attic bedroom, uh, you know, to the reconciliation she shares with Amy uh, at one point, it's a lot of it's a lot of emotions. You know, those are kind of the key, right? You need to have emotions, and she is able to capture those beautifully at any point in this film. So number six is Saoirse Ronan for Little Women. Number five, uh, unfortunately someone who didn't get nominated for an Oscar, which is just a joke, really. Uh, Aquafina for The Farewell. I love Aquafina in this movie. Uh, I've, you know, I've seen her in a couple of things now, and... Prior to The Farewell, I thought she was fun, but I wouldn't have ever considered her an Oscar-caliber actor. You know, I'm looking at stuff like um, Crazy Rich Asians. You know, she's she kind of felt like... Um, I, I don't know. She kind of felt like Melissa McCarthy in Bridesmaids, uh, who, you know, they do their thing, they have their spot you know a tiffany haddish and girls trip and you know there was the concern for me that she could p- pivot from there and have what the basically the career that haddish is having right now which would be awful but thankfully she kind of did a 180 with the farewell which is very very different from her role in crazy rich asians very very different from her role in oceans eight she is heartfelt she is passionate, she is questioning, you know, she's giving this very powerful dramatic performance that, you know, having talked, you know, I talked about the screenplay for for The Farewell already and and how difficult of a situation it is that it's portraying and, you know, Aquafina is kind of right in the center of it and she has to inform the audience and, you know, inform us of not only, okay, I'm in this really crappy situation right now where, you know, my nai is hurt, ill, and no one wants to talk about it, no one wants to acknowledge it, and it, it's devastating me, and I can't do anything about it. I, I can't even, you know, she can't even really, you know, have a moment with Zhao Shuzhen about what's happening because that would give away that she has what she has and and it's it's really frustrating it has to be and and i think there are so many underlying emotions going on in aquafina throughout this film and her character that she has to repress and she does it really really well she's able to uh give so much to this performance and at the same time, she's hiding 
aspects of it, you know, from us because she has to, because she's stuck in this role that is hiding, you know, she, she can't, there are a lot, there's more emotions than she can, she can display for her performance. And I think that gives it so many additional layers, so many different aspects to peel away. And uh, I really, really loved that side of it. I think Aquafina does a great job. I think her um, uh, her scenes, all of her scenes with Zhao Shijian are, are great. And her scenes with her mom are really powerful. And yeah, uh, she just, it, it's a journey for her character that um, she takes us on. And that gives us a lot of struggle for a lot for most of the film but but there is that release at the end i think and and that's kind of what you're hoping is going to happen and she she gets there and and achieves it with with grace and uh civility so number five from the farewell aquafina number four is a presumptive oscar winner joaquin phoenix for joker Number four, uh, look, it's the only nomination I got gave to Joker. I think Joker is a just a solid film from a Fe- Joaquin Phoenix perspective, and uh, it's mo- it's not a ton more than that. You know, I think the score is solid, uh, not great. I think uh, there's some good shots in the movie for sure. There's some good ideas in the movie for sure, but it's really the Joaquin Phoenix experience. And there's not a ton going on outside of that. And everything outside of it is informed by the Joaquin Phoenix performance at the center. So, uh, you know, he he is undeniably great in this film. He takes a character that has already won an Oscar for Heath Ledger, a character we've seen fantastic performances from uh, with Jack Nicholson and voice roles from, like, Mark Hamill, you know, this is a character we're gonna, and and we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna see Joker again, and it's gonna be somebody new, and he, that person is gonna try to, you know, find their own avenue towards this character, and and that's the beauty of this character in that there are so many different uh, interpretations of what the Joker is and who he, and you know how he conducts himself and how he acts and and how he responds to the Batman to to Gotham. To, to good people, to bad people, to this, that, and the other. And Joaquin Phoenix, you know, a Joker origin story, which this movie, you know, supposedly is, it's a very fascinating prospect because you don't, I don't know, you know, I see Joker in other movies and, I'm like, and I do think, you know, how did this happen? How did this guy get to where he is? But it's one of those questions where, I think I'd rather not know because I think the answers are, you know, the the question is is more interesting than the answer, and I I, I think that is still true. I think despite the success of this movie, despite uh, the good elements that it has, uh, I think the the answers it provides are lackluster compared to the question it asks, the question asked of you know what how did the Joker get to where he is. But giving us a performance that shows the the descent into from uh, uh, Howard Fleck, uh, 
to um to Joker throughout the course of this film is really really fun. Uh Phoenix clearly having a ball with this character. He's absolutely wrapped up in the mentality of it. He you know, he has the laugh, and he has the sort of eccentricities of Joker and all the different facets therein. And it's it's really I don't know, you know, it's it's one of the things where like he's going to win the Oscar. It's a fairly undeniable performance and uh for me you know, for me, Adam Driver is the only comparable male lead of the year that I can put against Phoenix and say, "Yeah, this guy can. This guy can hold his own." And uh, you know, I, it's a shame that no one, none of the bot award bodies went for a Driver, but I can't fault him because Phoenix, he's flashier, he's bigger, he's louder, he's, you know, he's he's got so many positives going for him and his character in this movie that uh, you know it, it makes sense that he he would have such a command over this award season and he earns it he absolutely earns it uh, so my number four Joaquin Phoenix in Joker my number three another actor that did not get nominated at the Oscars and it's a damn damn shame Lupita Nyong'o and Lupita is playing dual roles in Us. Tricky. It's a horror movie, so she's playing the good person and the evil person. Tricky. She's also, you know, through the machinations of the plot of Us, a lot of questions are thrown at her character about what is real and what isn't, about who is what and and what is who. And that is tricky. Lupita's an Oscar winner, and I saw this quote uh, in an article short, you know, shortly after the Oscar nominations came out, you know, because there was a general consideration that Lupita would get nominated. She'd won a couple of precursors. I think she got a SAG nomination as well, and, uh, you know, so there was definitely a, um, a path for her to be nominated here, but the quote I saw was something to the effect of, uh, Lupita Nyong'o can win an Oscar for playing a slave and can't even get nominated for playing two fully realized three-dimensional characters with, you know, agency. And that is so frustrating. That is so demoralizing and disappointing. Not to take anything away from Cynthia Revo, but I, I don't really... I didn't care for the movie of Harriet that much, and I thought her performance was good, not great. I think Lupita Nyong'o's performance in Us is stellar. It is absolutely fantastic. She has to play so many roles against herself, and it, it just it it is mind-boggling that she doesn't get a nomination here. And you know, call it you know, call it Oscar so white, call it you know horror bias call it whatever you want it's wrong as far as i'm concerned it's wrong she is absolutely deserves to be a a top five best actress nominee and as far as i'm concerned uh you know top three best lead performance nominees i i think she just there are so many different facets to this performance 
you know, as red and as white. She just, there's no, there's so much going on in this movie. And the movie itself, you know, I don't, it gets, um, it got a tactile effects nomination from me. It has some good aspects to it. I think all the performances in it are very strong. But Lupita's is just, it, it you know, I compare it to Joaquin. I think it is comparable. It is undeniable how powerful this performance is. And for whatever reason, enough people just uh, are blind to it, which is very disappointing. Uh, so my number three best lead performance from us is Lupita Nyong'o. Which means top two are both from Marriage Story. It's Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. And I'm looking back through the previous years, and such a thing has only happened once, and it was in the supporting category in 2010 for The Fighter, where uh, Amy Adams and Christian Bale were number one and two in that category. Although maybe it happened in the song category, that is a consideration as well. Uh, it did. It happened in song as well that same year from Tangle. Uh, but hasn't happened before in the best lead performance category. And before I speci- specify who won, I just got to say, like, I talked about Bombach from a directing standpoint. We already talked about Laura Dern. Uh, Driver and Johansson in this movie are absolutely amazing. The heartbreak, the passion that they put into these characters, the relationship that they have with each other, with their son, um, with Johansson's mother and sister, with, uh, you know, the lawyers that mediate their divorce and, and everything in between. When they're apart, they're fantastic. When they're together, it's an explosion. And and I, I was captivated from every of every single frame of this movie because of these performances and you know if I could tie them I would but I I can't and so for me number two is Johansson Uh, Scar Johansson is so good in Marriage Story she's playing you know this woman whose life feels taken from her to a degree and she's forcing herself to act after a long period of not doing anything. And it's it's powerful, it's a struggle, it's difficult. And it seems like, okay, I want to do X, and uh, we're gonna ha- it's going to happen, and then uh, it'll be done. And if, if divorce was that easy, you know, it, you know, people wouldn't hate it and hate it so much, you know, right? And it, of course, is not that easy. It becomes a huge shit show. She, you know, she slowly begins, she'll slowly sees Driver as a villain. He slowly sees her as a villain. And, and they both grow to hate each other and, and despite their love for each other. And, and it's just overwhelming. You know, she has, Scarlet gives the more, I think she gives the more fiery performance of the two of them. I think her emotions play out a lot fiercer than Driver's for the most part throughout this film. She has a little more animosity toward him, uh, especially when they're uh, engaged with each other. And 
it's a testament to this film that they're both able to, you know, throw absolutely devastating insults at each other at, po- at one point, and we still want both of them to be happy. Uh, it's 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 a it's a fantastic tight wire act. So I love Scarlett Johansson in the Marriage Story. She's my number two, which means Adam Driver is my number one best lead performance of the year. I think, like I said, it's it's incredibly close. Noah Baumbach is able to pull some of the best performances, uh, the best performance for me out of either of these actors that they've ever had. It's powerful. You know, Adam Driver is a very physical actor. If you've seen him as Kylo Ren, if you've seen him in Girls, if you've seen him, you know, in any other movie, even like The Dead Don't Die and his uh, in Patterson, he's a very physical actor. He proves it here as well. I think uh, his physicality is on display in the fight that he has with Scarlett Johansson and the way he moves and the way, you know, his he reacts to, you know, his emotional reactions are much more physically based than Scarlett Johansson's are. I think hers are more emotion. Uh, her emotional reactions come out through her voice, through uh, her crying, uh, through her, you know, aggre- through through her yelling and so on. Whereas drivers are like, physical you know his you know he gets he gets he's the one that punches the wall he's the one that you know destroys this or punch or throws that or so on and so forth and um the knife situation you know everything that happened through him it feels to be a little more physical than what happened through scarlet and i think it's it's that's what pushes me towards driver over johansson it's the you know he he gets he may not be quite as good as she is at, say, the the vocal, emotional element of it, but I think he's he's a lot better at the physical side of things than she is, and maybe that's just the way that the performances were instructed. I don't know, but it, it's it it's what pushes him just over the top for me. I think he's, and 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 the other the other thing is the singular moment where he goes from one of the most disgusting awful ruthless people ever to just like this this sad little puppy dog that you want to cuddle with and hold and make him feel better and if that is not testament of of some of the best acting this year i don't i don't know what is um so for me, best lead performance, Adam Driver for Marriage Story. And we come to our penultimate category. Penultimate category, and that is best scene. Best scene. I am excited to get into this one. All right. And the nominees are The Argument, Marriage Story. The best acting I've ever seen from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Fishing at the Park, from Waves, I Didn't Know You Were a Painter, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Peach Montage, from Parasite. And every year, this category, man, it is so difficult, it is so excruciating, there are so many scenes I want to make this list, and they can't. Um, the farewell 
has multiple scenes that I think were in the running. Uh, there's other scenes from Marriage Story. There's other scenes from Waves. There's other scenes from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. There's scenes from Little Women, Parasite, 1917, uh, Weathering with You, Us. Uh, you know that I, I wish I could add to this list, and I can't. They they just they don't all fit. JoJo has this great scene that doesn't quite make it. Knives Out. Uh, there there there's too much right you just i i just can't uh, this is not enough toy story 4 i wish i could put see peanut butter falcon i i could list a, a ton of movies that, that i wish i could put on this list and they just don't quite get there for me and i think you know one of the things i try to do is when i when i'm rating movies generally speaking and when i'm working on these my circle of film awards lists as well I always want, even though I know I, there's going to be subjectivity that, that leaks its way in, I want to try to approach everything as objectively as possible. You know, it's not, you know, I look at the score and, and tactile special screenplay, the performances director. I don't generally believe, and, and, and oftentimes it isn't, like the thing I like the most does not always win the category because sometimes something is just better than what I like. And it's not always true. I can't always, you know, screen that decision as best as I want to. And I think best scene is the one category where um, my subjectivity, it, it, it's strongest. So uh, I say that, you know, I look at last year's winner, which came from eighth grade. And the scene from 8th grade uh, around the campfire is absolutely uh, the scene I liked, the scene that meant the most to me, the scene that affected me the most. And I can't deny that, and uh, I recognize that it's not going to be everybody's favorite scene, and uh, it's going to be a scene that doesn't even work for some people. But I, you know, this is, for me, the most subjective of the categories that I do, and uh, that's just a little... I guess preamble for justification and explanation, at least as to why it is the category, why why the nominees are what they are. Um, so some of these do spoil parts of their movies. I will avoid that. Uh, if for any of you, like I try to name them in a way that doesn't spoil their movies as well. My number five is the best acting I've ever seen from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, this is a scene of Rick Dalton. Leonardo DiCaprio's character on a movie set or on a TV set. He's filming a scene for a show, and it's uh, it starts with him uh, terrorizing uh, the the set and and demanding this and demanding that, and he throws Julia Butters' character to the ground, and uh, the actor the the director calls cut. He loves the scene. Oh, it's so good, and, and it is. It's a good scene, and. You know, he immediately, DiCaprio's like, oh, is it okay that I threw you on the ground? And she's like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Like, I throw myself on the ground for fun. I am wearing pads. And, like, I love Julia Butters in that movie. And the director comes over and he's praising DiCaprio. He's like, oh, my goodness, a triple, triple improvisation, uh, alliterative intro improvisation. You don't see that often. And it's like, is that a thing? Like, I feel like he just made that up. And, of course, like, all of this positive reinforcement, DiCaprio who's been struggling as an actor, you know, to 
feel like he belongs, to feel like he deserves, you know, he's embarrassed himself already. And this is a huge thing for him. This is a huge moment. He is kind of overcome with, with joy at first. And then Julia Butters gets up and leans into his ear and tells him that that was the best acting she's ever seen. And he kind of looks at her and he acknowledges it and he thanks her and and then he just he 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 stares off the middle of the in the middle distance <clears throat> and you can feel just how important that was to him in his face you can feel how much that one sentence is going to energize him for a long time and it it, it washes over him he bathes in that feeling he feel he, he understands it he recognizes it he he, he engages with it and then to cap off the scene he he kind of leans back a little bit he he's holding a gun from a prop gun and he he cocks the gun and he kind of shakes his head and smiles and just mutter kind of says to himself rick fucking dalton and and it's like all of a sudden it's all back into himself it's all back together and he's finally figured it out and man it's it's just so touching and I, I you know DiCaprio is great I think it's my fa- it's my favorite scene of his in the movie um, the fact that Julia Butters is in it is amazing I thought she was wonderful in that film and uh, I love that scene so much number four is the argument from Marriage Story um, I watched all of these scenes over right before I did this uh, I paused right after I did uh, Best Director and um or best i guess what best lead sorry and watched every scene over before i started talking about them uh and the argument in marriage story is god it hurts it hurts so much um you know i love the uh the the song that 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 driver sings toward the end i love the scene of him sitting on the bed uh, reading the note that Johansson wrote. Uh, there's a lot of great scenes in in Marriage Story, but I think the argument is the big one that that permeates through everything else. It's something that the film builds toward. It's something you feel coming. You know, in a movie like this, you realize, you recognize, okay, there's going to be a throwdown. There is going to be a confrontation. There's going to be a a reckoning. And this is that moment. I alluded to it already when I talked about uh, Driver and Johansson as their, and their performances. Uh, Driver caps off this harrowing scene by spouting some of the worst things you can say to a person. You know, it, it, it feels so real. It feels so alive. It feels so terrible. And he knows it, and and he breaks down immediately afterward. And I think, just like I, I, you know, you could say what you want about punching the wall. If anything, like I factor that in. It's probably why it wouldn't didn't doesn't rank third or second, maybe. Um, but it, it's it's just a powerhouse of acting between these two wonderful wonderful performers, and you just oscillate back and forth and back and forth between the two of them because as angry and upset and and 
frustrated and, and caustic as they are to each other, there's truth behind everything they're saying. Every single thing that says that comes out of their mouth, there's some element of truth to it. And that is what makes it sting so hard. Um, so my number four is the argument from Marriage Story. My number three is I didn't know you were a painter from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, so the premise of the film is Marianne shows up to paint Heloise and Heloise doesn't want to be painted. So the she shows up. So Marianne shows up under the guise of you are now a friend to walk around outside with or whatever. And uh, that goes on for a little bit. And about halfway through the film, she confesses to Heloise that I've I've been assigned to paint you. I'm supposed to paint you. And I I referenced uh, the the scene. Then cuts immediately over to the current portrait that Marianne has worked on. That is very very bad. It does not look very much like Heloise. And they engage in a conversation after that. That I really really like. It's it's a beautiful conversation and exchange and as someone who as a writer you know I can talk about writing and and how that how I use my craft uh in ways that someone who isn't a writer I would assume you know couldn't you know you you, you think at least and you know listening to Marianne talk about the painting as a painter and Heloise is not a painter you know, I think she enters that conversation, enters this exchange, like, well, obviously I know what I'm doing. Obviously I know how, how it works. And at the same time, she knows that her portrait is not good. Um, so if you have a work of art that you're not proud of, that you, you know, it almost feel embarrassed to show to somebody and you kind of expect them not to like it. And then they do, but that only makes you more upset because like, oh my goodness, I want you to like it. And, and, I know it's bad, but I really still want you to like it anyway. Something, just validate me, validate me, validate me, validate me, validate me. That's kind of the whole point is validate me, validate me. And when that doesn't happen, when that doesn't come, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty devastating. It's pretty frustrating. And, and you see in this scene that Marianne wants to, uh, you know, wants to make it, wants to defend what she's done, wants to defend what she made. And she tries and there's this, and, and the biting lines at the end between the two of them, you know, she's upset, you know, how dare you, you know, you're not a painter. What do you know? You know, you're not a critic. And it, it, it ends with the lines of Marianne saying to Heloise, like, I didn't know you were an art critic. And Heloise returns. I didn't know you were a painter. And it recontextualizes this whole conversation because, of course, obviously they're talking about the merits of the portrait and, and whether it's a good portrait or not. And there's a lot of details about that that I also really love. But up until this last line, it's really just about the portrait. It's really just about the ability for Mary, of Marianne to paint. And it doesn't, it doesn't really go beyond that from what you can hear and what the words say. And then with that last line, Heloise kind of twists the dagger a little bit. And it's like, you know, not only do I think your portrait is bad, but like, don't forget, 
you've been deceiving me this whole time. And all of a sudden, it, it brings up all the previous things that they've seen and all, all this other all these other elements of this of this relationship that's developed between the two of them. And it does such a good job of setting the stage for this movie and, and then the second half of it that's to come. And I think it's a, it's a really beautifully written scene uh, with with no no prop no issues, none whatsoever. So I didn't know you were a painter. My number three. My number two is the Peach Montage from Parasite. Um, so the first act of Parasite involves this lower class family conning their way into taking the helping jobs in an upper class family, whether it's teacher, tutor, driver, housekeeper, etc. And three out of the four have taken a spot and they're just they just got to get the last one in. And, you know, the first spot was taken, it took, you know, however long it took, and then when, uh, for the kid to become a tutor, and then the art teacher uh, was a little quicker, a little easier, and then we, quick transition into her giving information and helping out for her dad to become the driver, and then the final, the final piece of the puzzle is so fast Right, we've already seen all three three cons at this point, and now we get the final one, and it is beautiful in execution. It is pitch perfect. It is like an Ocean's Eleven on steroids, and on top of that, it's all told in montage. You've got voiceover and intercut um, editing. I've talked about the editing as well. The uh, execution from each character the execution of the script the execution of the editing it's all working in conjunction in conjunction with each other to create this this absolutely magnetic scene and sequence that starts with just an idea uh and like a minute later like four cuts later it's all of a sudden you know acting you know it's all everything's already in motion and the the speed with which Bong is able to get us from, okay, what if we get rid of the housekeeper? To, okay, the housekeeper is allergic to peaches. To, okay, the housekeeper has tuberculosis. To, okay, this, 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 this. And it feels, you know, in a different movie, this is going to take like 20 minutes to enact. And in Parasite, it happens in about five minutes. And it's somehow just as poignant, just as relevant, just as important, just as heightened, just as smooth and, and fluid and it, it all just, fi it's firing on all cylinders. You can't look away. It's so, so beautiful to watch him weave this tapestry of this montage. And it, it really solidifies for me, like, some of the, the best a montage could possibly be. It's it's something that, you know, you look at Rocky and the training montage. You, you know, you've, there's so many of these so many montages that have happened in the past like swiss army man uh and and their mo that montage is also great and so it's tough to pull it off but man it is one of the most flawlessly crafted scenes in 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 a film this year or any other year and uh there's really only one reason it didn't win this category and uh, what did win was fishing at the park from waves and, as I mentioned, it is the subjectivity of this category that gives this win to Waves. 
I love the scene in in Parasite. It is so so fantastic, and maybe gun to my head, I say that it's technically the better scene. Uh, but even if that's true, I think emotionally, the scene fishing by this uh, fishing at the park uh, by in waves is is a much more emotional scene. It's much more impactful emotionally. So. Again, I don't want to get too deep into spoilers for this movie, but it's a scene between Sterling K. Brown and Taylor Russell, and it kind of starts off uh, with them acknowledging, you know, hey, we haven't really, uh, we haven't talked in a while, and, um, you know, a lot's been going on, and we don't really know what's happening with each other. And they both kind of recognize this, and so... Being a dad, the dad, Sterling K. Brown, he's like, so tell me, you know, how are you doing? What's going on? And, you know, you get this sort of teenager, like, fine, everything's good. Um, and, and you know, the dad kind of pushes her a little more, but uh, Emily Taylor Russell doesn't quite give in to him just yet. And instead asks him how he's doing, which is kind of a, tur- turns it around a bit, and... It's so amazing how Schultz and Brown and Russell and, and, and so on, everyone working on this scene, they create this moment where, you know, you ask your parent as a kid, you know, how are you, how are you doing? And it's kind of uh, hypocritical, but, you know, generally your parent's not going to go into the details of their life with their kid in that sense. Despite, you know, like, oh, everything's just okay. But that's, you know, you don't usually get more out of that out of them if you ask them. Not that I think kids ask that often. And so she asks him, and it's, you know, having seen what's come before this in this movie, Sterling K. Brown's Ronald, he doesn't have anybody to talk to. Like, that's part of the issue, is his wife is reticent to say anything she's withdrawn she's quiet she's not sharing her feelings and all of a sudden you know maybe he wouldn't have done this a week ago a month ago however long a year ago he wouldn't have opened up to his his daughter he wouldn't have been vulnerable he wouldn't have bared everything on his on his heart he chose he chooses to do it anyway and you know it starts slowly and he builds and he builds and he builds and he pours his heart out to her and he's upset he's depressed he's sad um and of course she is is surprised that he's he's willing to open up and uh she she tries to reinforce it she tries to encourage him she tries to to support him and what he's saying and it gets to you know he admits like i have n- i just have no one else to talk to and she tells him she's happy that he's he's willing to share this with her and i love this i'm already like watching this movie i was already in tears like half this at this point and then it continues and i won't go into the details of this part cuz absolutely absolutely spoilers for parts of this movie but emily returns the vulnerability she returns the exposure she re- she opens up she shares what's on her mind finally and it's destroying her it's killing her from inside it's it's 
she can't, she doesn't know how to understand it. She doesn't know how to put it into context to make sense of it all. And, and, you know, it's, it's a heavy thing. And, and her dad's like, you know, like any dad, you know, it's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. It's, it's, you know, you, we, you know, I love you, this, 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 but you can see on Sterling K. Brown's face, how difficult it is to, to believe what he's saying. And then, you know, I, I know he does think it, he, he absolutely thinks it, but I think he also realizes just how impossible it is to have been in the situation that Emily was. And, you know, she's in tears. She doesn't know how to reconcile with everything that's been going on. And he doesn't have all the answers. Um, but he tries. He tries to give her an answer. And and that's the, kind of the, how the scene ultimately finishes with him, you know, embracing the, the two of them embracing. And similar to last year's campfire scene, it's you know, last year's winner was also a, a father-daughter conversation, and it's, it's, it seems like that, you know, when they're written just right, and when the performances are, are that good, um, you know, Elsie Fisher and Josh Hamilton in, in eighth grade, and, and now Taylor Russell and Sterling K. Brown in Waves, I, I can't help but, but, you know, just, melt in front of these moments it 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 there's so much there's so much much pain in their in their words and in their faces and it's because they they haven't it's because they haven't been there for each other the way they should have been and acknowledging it hurts because it's it's a it's a it's progress and you and you're improving and you're hopefully making your relationship better by doing so but at the same time you're also acknowledging all the mistakes you've been making you're acknowledging all the times you you fucked up and and you did it wrong and you did it didn't you weren't there when you should have been and now you're trying to say all the right things and they don't come out right and you just you don't know how to it's it's affecting <clears throat> it's really, really affecting, and uh, it it gets me. It gets me. You know, it. I, I rewatching these scenes, um, just a few minutes ago. This was the one that that I teared up again watching it because I, I just. It's so beautiful. It's it's so nice. <clears throat> and so at the very end, after this moment, kind of um, wrapping up everything, uh, they drive home. Uh, Emily drives home and her dad's sitting in the passenger side. And <clears throat> you, you there's no dialogue. And he looks over at her and, and it's it's this unspoken conclusion uh of of what they've just realized with each other and and this relationship that they've built this understanding that he now has of of how mature his daughter is how old and grown up she's become but 
she's still his daughter and <clears throat> and and you know it, it as painful as what they uh, as what they're going through is he he recognizes how 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 much how important what they have is rather than what what's been taken from them and and she looks back at him and you know she feels it she feels the love and and it's not a thing we've seen between these two characters before this really uh you know at the start of the scene when he when when ronald says you know i don't even really know what's going on with you he's he's not lying he doesn't he has no idea and i i it's it's so wonderful i i love this scene so much um so for me best scene of the year fishing at the park from waves cannot um cannot uh, recommend that movie enough to enough people before we move into the final category of the night i have to hand out my honorary oversights uh so if you're not familiar every year I do um, every active year that I do the Circle of Film Awards, which have been since 2016, question mark, uh, 2017. I guess I didn't. I did them in 2016 when that year took place, but I didn't think to do honorary oversights until the following year. Uh, and this is basically anything I saw uh, since the last year, so since 2018's awards uh, awards episode that would have qualified for an earlier year and would have taken something spot. Uh, I honor those films by giving them an honorary oversight. That film list currently includes, uh, from 2017, Lady Macbeth and Personal Shopper. From 2018, Anna and the Apocalypse and Beast. And this year, uh, I have two more films. I tried to, I'm, I limit myself to two films in this category. And uh, both films are 2018 films which has kind of been the thing. Uh, the two films in 2017 that made it in are both 2016 films, and 2018, film, 2018 films that made it in are both 2017 films, so on and so forth. Uh, and those are Wild Rose for Jesse Buckley and for Glasgow as an original song. Both of those, I believe, would have... Glasgow absolutely makes it in. Um, Jesse Buckley would have, I believe. And for The Nightingale... Uh, there's a lot of things I could have considered for the Nightingale, but I think the one thing I'm sure of that would have made it in is uh, Aisling, uh, who is Aisling Franciosi, the lead performance in that film. But absolutely, Jennifer Kent, uh, Jennifer Kent's writing and/or directing were contenders that for 2018. And the I mean the simple fact of the matter is that these are both films that. I didn't see till 2019 because theatrically they didn't release in the U.S. until 2019. But for my purposes, they count as 2018 films and therefore were not eligible for this year's awards. Otherwise, they would have been there. So, honorary oversights, uh, which I almost forgot about, I'll be honest, uh, for this year are Wild Rose and The Nightingale. Wild Rose and The Nightingale. Which brings us to the final category of the night. Um, best picture, best picture. Let's do it. Let's get it done. Best picture. Your nominees are 
The Farewell, Little Women, Marriage Story, Parasite, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, all of these films are nominated at least four times this year. Uh, Farewell has four nominations, Marriage Story has six, Little Women has seven, Portrait and Parasite both have eight. Um, if you've been, you know, if you've been paying attention, Parasite and Portrait of a Lady in Fire have been duking it out in a lot of categories, and uh, each getting the better of the other in, in one instance or another. My number five is Farewell, and it, it sucks that this doesn't get to take home a win, but I think... It's, it's still a fantastic film. Um, it comes a little short for me. I love Aquafina. I love Zhao Shuzhen. I also love, uh, I want to make sure I get her name right, uh, uh, Aquafina's mother in the film, played by Diana Lin, I think is amazing. Uh, the whole cast is great. And it it is a, a real, real shame that there's no Oscar nominations for The Farewell ever at anything for for anything rather uh not Aquafina, not the screenplay not joshua Shen. it it's a travesty um this is an incredible film it absolutely deserves to be considered one of the best of the year and it is for me it's fifth fifth uh for me this year my number four is little women greta gerwig's adaptation of this classic film Nominated for Director for Screenplay, Saoirse for Florence Pugh, winning score for Desplat, tactile effects. There's so much to love about Little Women. Um, it looks the part. It's the period piece. It reinvents this story in a way that is fresh, that is new. I love the way it is edited together and, and goes flips back and forth between um, past and present. I love the way it commentates on... Uh, present day and how it impacts everything else uh, going on now with Me Too, with you know the fact that no women got nominated for director this year at the Oscars. You know they're 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 out there. Lulu Wang, Celine Sciamma, uh, 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 Harrell for for Honey Boy, um, Scafaria for uh hustlers and of course gerwig for little women they're all out there they're all doing incredible things and old white guys just don't give a shit and it's horrid it's really disgusting Uh, but gerwig's little women i love it i had such a great time watching it and it was um i cannot wait to see what else gerwig has got planned so my number four is Little Women. My number three, of course, is Marriage Story. Uh, and I think there's kind of a divide here in my top, my, my Best Picture nominees. Little Women, Marriage Story, and The Farewell are all very, very close to each other. Um, and then there's a significant gap jump up uh, to get to Parasite and Portrait for me. So this is kind of, the, uh, if you can even call it second tier, like they're all top tier films. Marriage Story... Bombbox nominated for director, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver for lead, Laura Dern for supporting, and of course the argument for best scene. Uh, the screenplay, the score are both near misses from a nomination, personally. I think it's a very, very strong film uh, from start to finish. I connect to these characters, I love them, and I hate them in almost equal measure. Uh, 
if there's anything I'm going to knock about the movie, I don't like the son. I like the kid. I don't think the kid's acting was very good. But the I mean, that's a very, very tiny issue in a movie that doesn't really spend a lot of time with the kid as an actor, at least. He's more of a prop, if anything. Uh, so I, I'm super impressed. I've always been a fan of Baumbach, and I... You know, I, I'm really pleased that he was able to make this movie and, and give such fantastic roles to Johansson and uh, Driver. Uh, it's a shame Driver's not contending more, uh, you know, not even challenging Phoenix for best actor, but uh, it is what it is. You know, he's the number two probably on every ballot, and that's uh, still pretty damn good, all things considered. So, that said... Brings us to our top, my top two films of the year, and it's been a race between *Parasite* and *Portrait* for the whole time uh, since I'd seen both of them. Uh, I saw *Parasite* first; it was instantly my favorite film of the year. Uh, it wasn't really close, and I was not expecting anything to top it, uh, or even come close to matching it. And watching *Portrait of a Lady on Fire*. It is a film that has grown with me since I've seen it. Uh, I, you know, I've seen *Portrait* and *Parasite* twice each, and both films are better on rewatch than they were the first time I saw them. Both films have so many layers. Both films are doing some fantastic technical uh, things. Uh, both films have fantastic performances in them, fantastic writing, fantastic direction. Uh, you know, it's it's a matter of inches, one way or the other, and. Ultimately, for me, um, my second favorite film, my second best film of the year is Parasite. It comes so close, but can't quite get there. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it just, it is what it is. I, I think both films are incredible. They both deserve any accolade they ever get, and, and probably many more than they get. Uh, I'll be pulling for Parasite to win everything it's nominated for at the Oscars, pretty much. Uh, but I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not of the opinion that it will win Best Picture. So, yeah, Bong Joon-ho, I'm so proud that uh, South Korea has finally broken into the foreign language film category. They deserve it. They've deserved it, earned, they've deserved it for a long time, and it's kind of rotten that they haven't gotten through before. But it's for such a deserving film as Parasite, they they really, really can't pull out all the stops with this one. And I think when you we look at next year and the coming years after that, uh, every foreign language contender is going to be compared to Parasite not Roma. Uh, yeah, Roma got 10 nominations, it won director, it won a bunch of awards, but I don't think any film is going to come... I think if any film is ever going to win Best Picture as a foreign language film contender, if, if Parasite doesn't do it, the film that does is going to have to be better than Parasite, and there's so... There's a really very little space for a film to be better than Parasite, as far as I'm concerned. So... um my number two is Parasite, and my best my best picture is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's 
it is it is a beautiful heart-wrenching story it tells a powerful female centered story from a time a bygone time that doesn't feel you know like the favorite went back in time and told a very powerful female centric story as well um and yet it still felt i don't i don't know i just i i I feel like I'm not explaining it well. <laughs> um, I think Celine Sciamma's abilities as a writer and director rival Bong Joon-ho, uh, particularly in this year, but as as an, in her career, you know, I Tomboy, she won director for Tomboy for me uh, back in 2011. I've seen all of her films, and they are all good. I, I love tomboy water lilies which also stars adele hanel is great girlhood is great pauline as a short film which has adele hanel in it as well is really good and this is the one like this is the culmination of of her her abilities this is her flexing her writing her directing her talent across the board um she pulls out some absolutely incredible performances from hanel and berlant Merlant, Berlant, Merlant, uh, Merlant, and she's able to tell not just a romance, not just a a, a drama, and, a, and with comedic elements. There are so many other facets, things I haven't mentioned about the film that are significantly featured. Um, you know, it the the painting aspect of it, the the sound within the movie. The, the way it looks, the feel of it, you, you're there, you can like taste the salty air coming off of the sea, you can, you know, you can feel the ruffles in the dress of the, of these characters, you can sense the, the pain in their voices, the joy when they're happy, the, you know, and, and the epilogue at the end of this film is such a, a bittersweet uh, cherry on top, it, it just, it, it, blew me away from from start to finish um not unlike parasite uh, for what that's worth and uh i think it deserves its spot as one of the best films uh you know it you know parasite is the highest rated um film on letterboxd right now ever like not even just this year ever it unseats Godfather, Godfather Part Two, Harikiri, Seven Samurai, Twelve, Twelve Angry and so on, so on, so on. Um, but not to be outdone, Paris <laughs> Portrait of a Lady on Fire is seventeenth. You know that is a pretty impressive uh, mark uh, for a, a single year for 2019 to have two of the top 20 films ever. You know is is a pretty astonishing accomplishment. And uh, both films deserve that recognition. Both films deserve it so, so, so much. I, I it's, it is what it is. That's just how. That's just what it is. Um, so uh, that's um, yeah. I, I'm not sure. I have anything else. Um, to say it it it's a great year i it's a really good year for film i think it's a step down from some of the previous years but 
the end of the year definitely picked up with 1917, uh, with Knives Out, with with Little Women, with Portrait, with Parasite, uh, with Waves, and so on. Some really good films at the back end of the year to kind of salvage what could have been a fairly bad year, all things considered. Um, so I'll just, I guess, run through the winners again. Uh, best scene, Fishing at the Park, Waves. Best special effects, best tactile effects, both went to 1917. Best score for Desplat and Little Women. Best song, Show Yourself for Frozen 2. Best screenplay, Celine Siama, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Best supporting actor, Song Kang Ho for Parasite. Best lead actor, Adam Driver for Marriage Story, Best Director, Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, and Best Picture, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Two men winning the acting races this year uh, after uh, two, after the gender splitting last year and splitting the year before that and splitting the year before that and splitting the year before that man did they uh whiplash and nightcrawler two men that year wolf of wall street blues wars color split that year lincoln the master two men that year have we not had a year with two women um no uh 2011 was two women and 2010 was also two women so i think that puts it at Three years with two men having won both acting categories. Two years with two, both women, with women winning both acting categories. And now five years with uh, a split. So men have a tiny advantage in, the, in the, the 2010 decade. And that also means, with 2019 Circle Film Wars wrapped up, I realize this is incredibly long and I'm going to try and wrap, God, over four hours. Uh, that means that I'm ready to do the 2010's decade Circle Film Ward episode. It is coming. It will be coming. It'll be soon. Uh, I'll probably give us give some time between now and then just to you know let it breathe. But uh, the way that's going to work is all ten winners for each category will be pitted against each other, and uh, may the best film win. So we will see films like. Uh, in the Best Picture Race, you will have The Social Network and Short Term 12, A Separation, The Imposter, Whiplash, The Handmaiden, Burning, War for the Planet of the Apes, Mad Max, Fury Road, and now Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And uh, that's just Best Picture. So I'm excited. I'm really excited to get into that episode. That is something we've kind of been building toward. And then after I get through that, we can jump backward to 2009, 2008, and keep going uh, into the... 2000 aughts thank you for listening to today's episode i'm not going to take up any more of your time it's been a ancient amount of uh, so 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 long four hours thank you for listening so much it does mean a lot if you would like to find more episodes of the podcast you can head over to circleoffilm.com to find that and much more you can head over to itunes stitcher plays where podcasts can be found you can find me on twitter at circle of film on letterbox at circle of film you can email circle of film at gmail.com you can support the show like it rate it review it subscribe to it tell somebody about it listen to it yourself that means the most to me if you'd like to become a patron at patreon.com slash circle of film you can do so for the little eight cents an episode i have to thank bb uh for being such an amazing patron subscriber and and so so generous with with his subscription Thank you so much. Thank you, the listeners, so much. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same tonight.
Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So long.